let's start off with with uh with ontology and see where we go from there so i've been uh i've been quite into the ideas of don hoffman and uh bernardo castro at the moment um idealism is getting kind of a a uh, bit of a resurgence at the moment. Uh, Andres is probably quite familiar with this, but you've essentially got this battle between materialism and, and idealism. Materialism has been the dominant mainstream scientific paradigm for quite a while, um, but the tide shift from Don Hoffman, from Irvine, and, and soon Vintner and Kestrup have, have, have changed things up a bit. So uh, in a nutshell, materialism says dead matter is fundamental. Um, there's a dead material universe with two miracles. The first one that there's anything to exist at all. And then the second one is that consciousness somehow arises from dead material matter. Um, and you emerge from that dead matter and then you return to the same emptiness. So that's like, that's like kind of like the reductionist materialist paradigm that that's got us this far. It's done quite a bit for us, you know, as far as science and technology goes, but it's kind of coming to some dead ends. Idealism, which is the thing that Hoffman and, and Kastrop have been, have been playing with is, they flip that around. They say that consciousness is fundamental. All matter is projections of consciousness uh, and conscious beings are simply disso dissociated beings of the same universal mind. Uh, it's a separate discussion whether that universal mind itself is conscious, uh, probably not in the same way that we are. Um, so within idealism, death is simply the end of dissociation and not the end of consciousness, which can never end because it's fundamental. So I'd love some discussion on this. Um, because we're using abstract language to describe this ontology, but I've got a feeling that there's some direct knowledge through experience that may be insightful here from, from all three of you um, and probably in some kind of exotic states, whether those are uh, uh, meditatively induced or uh, pharmacologically induced or otherwise. Um, so I'd love some discussion on this. It's, it's, and uh, just to ground this down, this is a pragmatic question because different assumptions about base reality could shape new scientific and technological paradigms and this is what Kastrup and Hoffman have discussed as well where we're getting to the edges of physics and where we're getting to the edges of technology right now could be there could be entire new spaces uh, to be discovered if we take this idea seriously so anyone that would like to take the floor I think the easiest way to go about this is if you have something to say maybe raise a hand because there's three of us and then we don't get this weird awkward thing and then we can we can jump in there so whoever would like to go feel free to jump in and in, into that <laughs> We're being polite. Okay. I go, I go. <laughs> go okay, go ahead, Frank. Go, go. Um, I don't have much to say uh, except that I used to be a materialist. I used to be into like you know evolutionary psychology and everything's about the brain. You know, everything's about evolution and biology. And I was really into the brain for a while, and that's how I got into meditation because I was studying the brain, you read about neuroscience and psychology, and then I started to experiment with psychedelics. And I was like, holy shit, this is not just the brain. I mean, it is the brain. At, at, at the time, I still felt with the brain, but then. It's a whole subjective experience side to this thing where you can explore from the first person subjective level instead of just reading about the neurons and stuff. So then after that, I started to get into meditation. I'm like, okay, wait a second. Um, how do I sort of kind of lock this psychedelic, some of those psychedelic glimpses I have um, manually? So I got into meditation about like eight years ago. And then went from there. And after I got into meditation, got into different states and along with my previous psychedelic experience, I'm like, okay, maybe this is not just the brain, maybe there is something fundamental about consciousness. And then I sort of moved into the other side of the paradigm and got into like idealism. So I was an idealist for a while. I was like, okay, everything's like, you know, God consciousness or like universal consciousness. 
and then I was there for a little bit, you know, the later past, and then uh, I realized, hmm, maybe this is just another idea. Maybe we don't really know where consciousness, uh, consciousness comes from. Um, so after a while, you know, dabbling into idealism and, you know, um, getting into the whole idea of uh, like Donald Hoffman and stuff like that. Um, later on, like maybe it's neither and both. Maybe it's, uh, maybe idealism and materialism, uh, there is truth to both sides. Maybe they're codependent rising. Maybe it's not just the brain and it's not just materialism. It's not just ideas. It's not just consciousness. Um, perhaps they're um, co-created and they sort of feed on each other in sort of this loop. And I don't know, in my direct experience now, I don't really think about that <laughs> that much. It's just like, you know, it's just what it is. <laughs> I don't <laughs> nice. know. I don't really there know. I don't know consciousness is. There, Daniel. Nice. Yeah, excellent. Um, so I'm a strict ontologically agnostic empirical empirical pragmatist. Those of you who have heard me go into this rant before are going to hear it again. Sorry, that's the same rant. <laughs> anyway, so starting as a Bayesian, right? So it's kind of how our brains work. They take, you know, we let's say we had four theories of consciousness. One is that this is all a matrix and some computer somewhere is a simulation that somehow is able to perceive itself. I don't know how that works, but let's just say it was possible. <laughs> Right. So matrix, basically, the next one is, let's just say this is all some, you know, the dream of the great god Vishnu, which is sort of another bit of language of consciousness being the whole thing is the consciousness of some dreaming god. And we're each little <laughs> parts of that consciousness, forgetting that we're part of the consciousness of a dreaming god or whatever, which is just kind of a reframing of it's sort of a flowery reframing of idealism. Right. And then right. Let's, let's say, that, you know, hypothesis number three is that this is all hand wavy, hand wavy, hand wavy, an emergent property of insensate particles and forces, which is you know, which is part, but I'll get to the other qualifier in a little bit of the materialist thing, right? Versus solipsism. This is all either your imagination or my imagination. I'm not going to pick a side, but somebody's imagination. There's a single one of us that is dreaming this whole crap show. Um, good on them. Um, so like, so let's say you took these, these four hypotheses, right? And you assign them pretest probabilities as a good Bayesian. IA, have no idea how to assign these pretest probabilities. So I'm as likely to assign 0.25 to each of them as anything else, right? Just sort of give them a neutral chance. And then the theory of Bayesian statistics, which is also kind of how our brain works, is you compare prior hypotheses or you know, pretest hypotheses to data, and then you come up with your post-test odds of things being a certain way through a little bit of not very fancy math. Right. And so the problem is not only do I not know how to assign the pretest probabilities, um, and I might, depending on the recent experiences I had had, be highly biased by that recent, recent and transient experience, but I also have no idea what experiment I would then do that would move the needle. I don't know how to differentiate among these various competing hypotheses. And consequently, as a, someone who's got a lot of statistics, you know, statistics training and sense of scientific training, I have no way to, 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 have a sense of which of these, if any of them, might be true. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, though, I'm also an empirical, empirical pragmatist, so an ontologically agnostic, empirical, empirical pragmatist. And empirical, I mean, in both senses of the word, both the experimental sense, like something reproducible, you know, I can like drop a pen and every time I drop the pen, it drops to the ground and I can keep doing that and it drops to the ground every time, you know, that sort of experimental mindset, but also empirical in the sense of David Hume, where my experience 
is really important, essentially the British empiricists, right? That that my, and 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 in this immediacy, I find some contradictory experiences, which I'll get to in a second. So, in terms of how they might modify my sense of which ontology might be true, but then as a pragmatist, I, I very much appreciate your pragmatic lens of which technologies might come out of adopting various views. And clearly, materialism has been pretty successful, at least in generating technologies. Although we could also look at the the psychological and real human suffering outcomes of having a materialist philosophy, which arguably are a very strange mix of existentially terrifying psychopathic, you know, like maybe we're just all insensate particles and and all just forces and evolutionary, you know, unfolding Newtonian mechanics or God knows what. So you can have these sort of dehumanizing. There actually there are some positive things that can come out of materialism as well. That's a whole different topic. But pragmatically, we don't actually have comparative outcome studies. So what I would like as a scientist is the sense of comparative outcome studies of what are the psychological and societal and ecological, et cetera, technological implications of adopting each of these views. And I don't think we have good longitudinal outcome studies that look at some of the major outcome categories in terms of mental well-being. Is it, is it mentally healthier to assume you're just insensate particles and you will die at the end of your life? Or is it mentally healthier to imagine you're part of some divine, cosmic, eternal, you know, perpetual consciousness and that will just merge back into the, the collective you know, luminosity or whatever when you're gone. These, these are questions that the religions have debated. And the fact that 6.6 you know, 6 billion people on the planet still subscribe to some religious belief, the vast majority of which involve some kind of continuation after death, shows that most people are voting on the side of the, those seem to have some sort of... Um, sense of psychological import or relevance or something that it could just be cultural inertia. I've been talking for a long time. I'm going to stop there, um, but there's a lot more I could say. Sorry. <laughs> now you, you've heard my whole diet or the opening diatribe on the subject. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'll just uh, jump right in, which is, uh, <clears throat> I mean, uh, all of these are, uh, yeah, great, great thoughts uh, and perspectives and like, yeah, would, would, would largely uh, echo them. Uh, I do have a couple things to say, which is, um, I mean, first of all, I think there is a um, this very key distinction between ontology and then reification, and it gets really tricky with uh, Buddhist circles because it kind of like gets mixed up with uh, meditation advice, and and to that extent, um, okay, so like. I would strongly distinguish that it's kind of like you have like ontology and there's like good and bad reasons to believe in that particular kinds of ontology. Um, but then there is like what the mind does when it believes in a particular kind of ontology. And so like you can have like very subtle ontologies, you know, say something like, oh, everything is emptiness or something like that. But it will still, you know, manifest in a particular way of seeing the world or way of seeing reality. Like it might subtly change the rendering of your of your of your experience. And in that sense, there's kind of like this um, um, double arrow within your mind of like believing in a particular ontology and then like how you reify the world. And yeah. in that sense, you know, for, for a lot of, I guess, like Buddhist practitioners, um, talking about ontology may not be that helpful. And in some sense, like it might be detrimental. That is, it is kind of like planting particular seeds for specific kinds of reification that may, you know, maybe down the line you become attached to or, or, or get you stuck in terms of like defabricating your world. Um, that said, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't talk productively about ontology. I think like if we are like very philosophically clear and grounded, 
Um, and in particular, I would say that, yeah, there's quite a bit to actually um, say about the topic that I, I, I would claim actually makes the case for certain kinds of ontologies versus, versus others. Again, like with kind of like the caveat that like, okay, these will modify the way in which you see the world and in some sense modify your meditation. <laughs> and to some extent, you know, there's kind of this epistemological problem around it. Uh, but acknowledging that, um, so I would say that, okay, like, uh, to, at, at a very high level, um, any you know scientific theory of consciousness um, that works has to be able to answer the following four questions, which is why does consciousness exist to begin with? Um, qualia, essentially, what is the set of possible uh, qualia values and varieties like the sense of touch and you know the the, the quality of sound that we experience? Um, what are the causal properties of consciousness? Uh, how is it that we can talk about it? And also, like, how does the binding problem get solved? How is it possible that, like, you know, 100 billion neurons simultaneously contribute to a unified experience? So in a sense, these are, I think, like constraints, hard constraints. Like, if your theory of consciousness of reality doesn't address these, then it's not a complete theory. And to, to that extent, you can rule out a, a bunch of them because they just don't make explanations or predictions in these, in these domains. Um, I'll, I guess I'll... I'll, I'll I'll conclude this this brief segment by by saying that uh, I do think that there's like some ontologies that are much better at kind of um, addressing these particular questions, and the one that I you know broadly speaking think makes the most sense is a version of idealism that is physicalist to the extent that uh, the laws of physics are taken very seriously. You know, it may not be it may be the case that the standard model is not the complete picture, but I think like at least it's a fairly detailed picture of a very big portion of reality. And I think like, you know, <laughs> whether some kind of like grand spirituality turns out to be the case, I suspect the standard model <laughs> will probably be describing a corner of heaven at the very least, <laughs> if, if not something much more fundamental. Um, and in that sense, yeah, if there's like other realms or something like that, I, I would actually expect there to be like mathematical laws that explains them and that they will probably satisfy things like Noether's theorem uh, Mac principle, principles of relativity. I, I would expect a lot of those things to actually be satisfied, even if the geometry <laughs> ends up being really exotic and, and you know something completely different, like hyperbolic hyperbolic geometry, uh, like on DMT and other exotic states of consciousness. Um, but uh, yeah, the thing I'll, I'll 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 conclude with here is that um, um, I think like a lot of these problems, like okay, you know, the reality of consciousness, qualia, causality, binding can be actually solved with um, what I call a field ontology of consciousness. So the, the key idea here is that um, we have to reframe actually what reality is, not in, you, you know, rather than thinking of it in terms of like all of these like gazillions of atoms interacting with one another, um, which makes the problem, the phenomenal binding problem unsolvable in a sense. Like if you only have a bunch of atoms, like how is it possible they can come together to create a unified experience you know, I, I argue that's actually not possible, no matter how you look at it, you know, whether in terms of integrated information or causality or cellular automata, there's just no clean ways of generating boundaries. But if you start out with an ontology of the universe where everything is actually a huge field, then our individual experiences make sense as topological pockets within that field. And in that sense, you have actually something that uh, generates clean, causally relevant and objective boundaries that separate each moment of experience while still in some sense you know 
giving you this perspective that yeah we're all kind of this fundamental field of consciousness <laughs> that is around us we're just like in this precise moment in this location in space time a tiny topological pocket of it and yeah i'm happy to to say more and argue for it but uh yeah just as a matter of introduction so we essentially have uh correct me if i'm wrong but we have frank and daniel on the agnostic side of this uh frank more on it might be a bit of both and uh, Daniel not being able to place his priors and putting equal distribution of probability across those and so remaining fully agnostic. And then we have myself and Andres on, on the other side that are leaning a bit harder into idealism uh, as, as sort of a fundamental ontology. That's super interesting. Uh, uh, also interesting to note that uh, Frank and Daniel have both, uh, you know, reached awakening and, and I assume Andres <laughs> hasn't and I, I have not. So maybe that's that's a distinguishing factor here. Um, yeah, is there anything else that anyone would like to add or discuss on this topic? Otherwise I can continue, uh, along to, onto, onto further things. Actually, yeah, I've got a, I've got a bunch. So I think the it. points you make, Andres, are really good. From a pragmatic point of view, they're very reasonable considerations. From a betting point of view, I think they're all reasonable considerations. And, and I think... From a yeah, I think they have a lot of likely utility, and they have a, um, a, a theoretical appeal to them. Like it's it's easy to see why a field topology model makes some kind of sense rather than an atomistic model, right? Obviously, and and, and there's a lot of support for underlying structure of that in the way quantum field theories work and psi squared probability fields and all those kinds of things that don't have hard boundaries and assume the sort of radical interdependence of effects, fields, forces, psi squared probability waves, whatever you want to call them at sort of the Schrodingerish level as well as at other levels, right? So this sort of interactive systems point of view. So, so I, I get that. And also, um, from a materialist point of view, idealism is what it says is going on anyway. This is obviously something that is counterintuitive until you think it through, right? So literally the sum total of our perception, there is no true red. The materialists would say that's actually a specific, you know, amount of energy in the quanta of the photons. There is no true flavor of, you know, spaghetti or the true smell of a rose or whatever the true, there's no true warmth or cold there. Like every single thing we perceive is not the thing that the materialists say is the foundation of reality. So there's this, there's this perfectly hard line between the representations that they are saying are happening in a brain somewhere, a material brain. So this three-dimensionally constructed holodeck we seem to inhabit of all these qualia are by definition not the things themselves because there is no true red or spaghetti. So in, in this kind of way, materialism obviously argues absolutely for the sum total of our empirical experience in the human sense being constructed from the material so that we live in an entirely created experience world is the punchline of materialism, weirdly enough. That was not what, how far most materialists take it, but that is the punchline of, of hard materialism, weirdly enough. So to, to adopt a materialist framework and then have all considerations of experiential something 
not be purely idealistic is also hypocritical because that is the materialist punchline. So the one, they're inseparable theories. It's just a question of kind of which direction you prefer to stand from. Do you see what I mean? You could also argue it the other way, that somehow in the Humean way that an empiricist would, again, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the empiricists, that literally everything we have extrapolated about the quote-unquote material world we have never experienced, except through extrapolation and these sort of false, from materialistic point of view, impressions, colors, smells, tastes, meanings, etc., are were all extrapolated from this primal experience. And so again, from a human point of view, you can argue with them, that idealism is the first basis of everything, given that uh, from a materialist point of view, idealism is experience. Did right, that right. make any weird kind of sense? <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, as a matter of direct experience um, right now, which is all we have, everyone's an idealist. Even like, right. if you talk about brains of materialism, it's still arising like, in consciousness. You can say like that. Um, I'll, 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 I'll jump, jump in. Well, uh, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I mean, I, I actually agree with what you said, uh, two, two, two couple things. One is, I think you're underestimating the, uh, <laughs> the extent to which like hardcore materialists will go, uh, to actually square the theory to the facts. I mean, like the term empiricism, you know, like etymologically speaking actually means with regards to experience, right? Like <laughs> supported by experience. That's what empiricism means. But, but yeah, no, I mean, I think talking to like, you know, very highly, you know, high IQ, but also very high Asperger's quotient, kind of like hardcore materialist reductionists, uh, like, no, actually, they will say that the punchline of materialism is that consciousness doesn't exist, that, <laughs> like, right. that, that actually, you, you have to take it like, all the way and realize that, like, you've never, ever actually had an experience, which is, of course, like, you know, it's just obviously not the case or like it's obviously the case that <laughs> and the fact the, that in that moment they are experiencing the thought that there is no experience has right. obviously something of a blind side yes yes, yes. <laughs> a little bit they, they, they will say something that um that we're like over it's an overreach of language or something like that that like they're not actually having a quote-unquote thought rather there's like some kind of information processing that we're choosing to label as a thought but that's like folk psychology and like really we should just be looking at information processing and so okay like another very important axis is um that maybe clarifies this a little bit it's um there's also direct versus indirect realism about perception and like this is like a subtly <laughs> subtle but like super important distinction i i was joking with a friend this is definitely not the case but like just joking with the possibility that like hey maybe actually all that buddha was trying to teach was indirect realism about perception that we actually all live in our internal world simulation generated by a nervous system maybe it can interlock you know and resonate with other other world simulations but in some sense there's some some um something something like um something to to, to the idea that essentially you don't perceive the world directly that there's like what you exp what you perceive is a simulation of the world that is being rendered in your in your nervous system um Sorry, I'll, I'll just quickly mention that uh, that is in contrast with uh, indirect realism, or at least in, in, in my circles, we call it uh, uh, simulationism, which is this idea that, yeah, essentially you inhabit a holodeck. <laughs> you don't realize how much of a holodeck it is until you experience it on certain kinds of meditation or, or, or psychedelics where like, hey, actually, 
you can realize that there's these like disconnection that can happen between elements of your world simulation and the physical world around you. You know, you can verify that at times. Um, anyway, go ahead, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, I think no, I think that that is a really important point. And there are whole Tibetan schools of thought that are around that idea, right? And very sophisticated philosophical schools, obviously, right? Um, I will say that the, whatever realization I've attained to was the final dropping away of the notion that there could be anything other than just direct experience from a direct experiential point of view. Mm -hmm. Like all meanings, all thoughts are literally just direct experience, which is immediate, causal, transal, transient, sorry, aware of itself, where it is, et cetera. And so the from regardless of the ontological truth of it, from a pointing to how to wake up to this particular sort of realization that is skillful and effective. Like the, the final sense that all thoughts of a past or of a future, of an alternative, of another time, of another place are literally just occurring now, inevitably, perfectly, it's a funny word, but you know what I mean. And so yeah. that sense of, so in terms of a skillful pointing out instruction of a way to get to this upgrade, which regardless of its ont ontological veracity just happens to be way better experientially and just has, and also has this weirdly compelling sense of truthiness to it that becomes like the only game in town because it is everything and applies to everything, all meanings, thoughts, whatever. Like it's a really good pointing out regardless of whether or not you give it full ontological weight, but the assumption to give it full ontological weight helps from a practice point of view. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is fascinating. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll jump in and say again, like, uh, two, <laughs> two quick things. The, the first one is that, um, this circles back with kind of this distinction between ontology and, um, recipe or actually the, the term I use is, um, like review versus recipe where it's like review is kind of like what is what happens after you apply a particular technique for a very long time the recipe is like the description of how to apply that technique right so what what you're describing daniel is like okay like applying the technique of like you know absolutely anything that you experience <laughs> is part of your you know raw sensate quality or like kind of like focusing on like yeah there's nothing you, you experience that isn't you know part of your world simulation that's a, a great recipe. I also think it's, you know, ontologically true um, in, 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 a, in a particular way, which is that um, if something is like bound to your experience is essentially because of the transitivity of binding, um, it is, yeah, inevitably just kind of like part of your own world simulation. Um, but, but the thing I'll, I'll, uh, that I find like maybe more funny or like, funny is not the right term, but like funny in, in the sense of like strange, um, not necessarily in the in the sense of like hilarious um not to say that there isn't there isn't some level of comedy in this unfortunately but basically like yes if you do kind of like believe that everything that you experience is is just consciousness over and over and over and over again that will have like some long-term you know <laughs> mind altering effects uh maybe broadly positive the thing I'll point out is that, like, if you're a hardcore materialist, especially a materialist eliminativist of the sort of people that I was describing, where you actually believe that talking about consciousness is complete nonsense, like, really, we should just be talking about atoms and, like, algorithms and, you know, all this qualia stuff is just illusory. Um, you know, in some sense, I'm an intellectual, you know, enemy <laughs> in, in, in a way, in a way of kind of like this, this trend of thinking. 
then again, I, I do have a, like a good number of like personal friends who actually believe in uh, illusionism. And I've actually been reached out more than once by uh, one of them having like some kind of like psychological crisis where like be because they're actually so enmeshed in this way of thinking, it actually becomes a kind of like meditation where like they're thinking like, I don't exist or like this doesn't exist. This is an illusion. This is an illusion. And they do it like over and over and over, you know, it becomes kind of like meditative. And then they actually start describing things such as like, like, yeah, like my mind started to believe it. And, and, and I literally felt like I was disappearing or I was uh, vanishing out of existing. I was realizing that I actually didn't exist and things like that. So, so, um, you know, hardcore eliminativism is not only a philosophy, it's also a kind of meditation yeah. with like completely unknown results, <laughs> probably pretty strange. Yeah. It's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, from, from a pragmatic point of view, like the lens that you put on, whether you want to believe in materialist or idealist point of view, it, it doesn't affect on your moment-to-moment -moment experience in a sense or how you interact with the world and uh, with people. And like even your meditation practice, like when I have a different lens, like when I was more heavily invested in certain lens, my, the direct experience of my meditation or even my psychedelic experiences, changes uh from one lens to the next so like daniel said it's all about practice you know at this at this moment of your life what kind of lens do you want to put on that's more beneficial to like yourself and others and your direct experience right now to dealing with the world i think uh, bringing back to like empiricism you know it, it is all part of the experience happening right now um but you know i i i used to have like the um this lens where I, I I thought that you know this direct experience right now is the truth of reality like you know this is really just you know reality experience itself but then after a while you don't really know like you know it's is the holodeck or is this really the direct experience like um it's hard to say for sure i think so i, I remain agnostic about that yeah i think i think remaining agnostic is also not a lens and for me like i think the agnostic lens is probably the lens that gets me like deeper into the state um yeah because like it's just like you know more like in a state space of indeterminacy so like the quality know. of bardo as realization that in between space that middle yeah. way that isn't any of these extremes exactly. yeah, yeah yeah i think it's, uh for me personally i don't know about other people but that lens uh, the lens of no lens uh, the perspective of no perspective actually puts me in like the deepest state like you know whatever you know we're experiencing right now like you know i, I definitely have something to mention <laughs> mention there uh, that, that that's that's amazing uh and uh so so i mean briefly speaking uh <laughs> both a affirmation and a negation are pieces of information so like mm. when you're you know inquiring into like you know am i in a holodeck or, or am i perceiving the world directly yeah, yeah an answer either in the affirmative or the positive will be extra information that you will have to hold in your world simulation so in right. some sense like agnosticism is a way of like in a sense like minimizing the information content of your experience okay. Just and I think like that's why, like in a sense, yeah, the deepest states of consciousness will tend to have kind of this agnostic quality, right, right, right. largely because that's the way to minimize the information content of the state at the moment. So, um, whether whatever the truth may actually be, like it's probably the case that like some of the deepest investigations will contain this kind of a, you know, background bed of uh, of uh, agnosticism because that's the way to essentially keep the information as low as possible and uh, concentrate on the actual state in the moment. Yeah, yeah, the don't the don't know mind, right? Yeah, the beginning things like that. Yeah. 
Nice. Um, speaking of your friends, the the illusionists, or is that what you yeah. call, what do they call yeah, themselves? Yeah, the illusionism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. illusionism. <laughs> yes. So what I mean, it's funny. Like, you know, thoroughly believing in illusionism is as weird to me as like you know the you know organized anarchist association or something. <laughs> it's got that it's got that weird oxymoronic quality to it. You know, like we are nihilists. We believe in nothing. You know, from like um, you know. From, <laughs> <laughs> okay. From uh, you know, uh, anyway, you know what I'm saying, Big Lebowski. Yeah. So like, it's like the straight, you know, the the fervent belief that they believe in nothing is. It's, anyway, so you get the idea. But um, Kenneth Folk and I used to talk about this a lot back when we were re reading a lot of Ken Wilber, and we called it the existential hot seat. And this actually comes out of Wilber one stuff, like the spectrum of consciousness. So if you split the world various ways. You know, um, one of the ways you can split the world is that the mind is supreme and the mind is split off from everything else. And thus, what the mind comes up with in the realm of hard logic is the supreme truth, regardless of the body, regardless of experience, regardless of the world. So it's an epistemological position, you know, position where you take the cold, hard, cutting analytical power of logic and you take that as your ultimate and only epistemological frame. And when you do that, you end up in what we call the existential hot seat. And you start running into all these strange contradictions. You can start, it, it can be incredibly powerful logically. I mean, like the whole, you know, Nagarjuna is basically like this taken to, you know, its logical extreme in some ways, as are lots of other things take this to their logical extreme. And when you do that, you do end up in this place where you start running into contradictions, paradoxes, things that are so compelling and yet utterly impossible, the sort of strange things that attempts to figure out quantum mathematics does with how many dimensions eliminate how many infinities, but then you have this, create this other problem of folding something. You know, there, there are all these things where eventually, you know, and people have pointed this out with logical systems, right? So, you know, logical systems always seem to end up containing something they can't totally verify and can't validate within that logical system. Um, or from a, a sort of Larwellian point of view. So Larwell, I'm no expert, but basically the problem is you draw a line somewhere and then having drawn that line, philosophy is how you then deal with the problem you've created by making a Larwellian decision of where to draw the line. And if their line they're drawn is a strict line between logic and extrapolation and literal experience, that's the most extreme representation of the Ken Wilberian fourth band of the spectrum of consciousness, the existential one. And anybody who's in that, I would highly recommend them reading about the other bands and how they might right. interact and the problems with having only one band that then assumes absolute ontological primacy. But the other thing I'm going to talk about briefly is how internal family systems relates to this, right? So we all have these parts of ourselves that might you know, there's a part of ourselves that really does believe will exist after death. And there's a part of ourselves that really, let's say, just believes in true illusionism that literally none of this is real, no experience actually exists. Well, then they either have parts of themselves that actually drive cars and operate very functionally and, you know, eat and breathe and walk and do all these things that very functionally seem to be incorporating knowledge of this stuff happening, regardless of whether or not they think it literally isn't happening and couldn't possibly exist. Right. So we all end up in these sort of internal with these sort of internal family systems ways of looking at things where clearly all of our functional total picture of paradigms don't all agree with each other. You know, and so that's the other interesting things. When you see these people who hold one extreme view, it's clearly only part of them that holds that. And then they still are able to do things like eat and breathe. So 
which that would be impossible if their theory was totally correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Frank, do you have anything to? Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say agnostic supremacy, <laughs> but not even that. Agnostic about that. Go, Frank. Oh, no, I, I don't really have anything to add. Really. So, so, I mean, the, the thing I'll mention is, um, uh, I mean, related to like, yeah, like how, how uh, agnosticism will generally show up in like very low information content uh, states of consciousness. Um, exactly. I mean, what you're describing, Daniel, yeah, the existential hot seat and kind of a all of these like weird contradictions. So the thing I'll mention here is there's this concept, I think like David Pierce has talked about this, definitely other people, even I think like Richard, Richard Feynman, which is this idea of like the, the medium of thought, how we think ultimately contaminates the very content of our thinking. And like the normal everyday kind of a standard state of consciousness that most people have kind of a yeah, dualistic thinking. <laughs> Obviously, I'm very interested of, in this conversation, given uh, you guys. But uh, yeah, essentially, the the default state where, like, okay, you do conceptualize yourself as kind of a self within your skull, roughly speaking, or or in your body, and like, you know, the waves of attention are reflecting off of objects, and you're reifying a world that way. Um, obviously, that is going to, if that's how you perceive the world, and you think like that's just how things are, like those, that's going to like severely contaminate the very content of your thinking in a way that is not transparent from within. I mean, it's kind of like trying to figure out that you're dreaming from the standpoint of a dream without having like anything to contrast it with. Um, now, uh, I think like the, the medium of thought in some sense is something that we don't explicitly represent within the content of thought. And like, that's one of the, the, the weird things here that like when you're trying to figure out the nature of consciousness or the nature of reality, being stuck in a particular frame uh, that has actually like implicit philosophical background assumptions. Yeah, like no matter how you reconfigure your mind, um, there might be kind of like, the, yeah, this implicit weird biases in the way in which reality gets rendered within your world simulation. And uh, that is really, really difficult to to exit. And like, you know, you may actually be stuck in a state of consciousness where you believe that you have kind of in this, um, I guess, like almost kind of this Descartes way of like, I have assumed nothing you know you may believe you're assuming absolutely nothing and still there being like very subtle background assumptions that are actually coloring <laughs> your state of consciousness what what kind of like mental formations you buy into or your kindle uh you energize and so on um the the state of consciousness that i'm aware of um that like actually does the, the job of like truly kind of like <laughs> uprooting like really deep-seated background assumptions is um not any psychedelic it would be just like 5-meo dmt like specifically as like the one that is the most in the direction of like fully defabricating the world or like really kind of like uprooting deep deep-seated background philosophical assumptions um but unless you do something as radical as that or presumably something like fourth path there will be like subtle philosophical background assumptions yeah influencing kind of the the very way in which you think and and the way in which you reason that you have to yeah kind of like exit <laughs> in order to, to to know that you're doing that i'll i'll mention that uh like despite all of this i'm like obviously yeah very very optimistic we could actually make like good progress and like maybe to uh to put it on the table and like i'm happy to circle back into it um essentially the the current model that like i i think is the, the one that is the most likely to be in the right direction. Um, I mean, I obviously talked about like topological segmentation for solving the binding problem, and there's a bunch of things in that direction. 
but to explain like what is the nervous system like to a first approximation um i would say that it's a <laughs> and this is a mouthful but uh <laughs> i think it has explanatory power i i essentially suspect that the nervous system is a non-linear optical computer and a lot of these weird things <laughs> that we are talking about can be explained in terms of exotic highly energized states of a non-linear optical computer um I'll, I'll circle back to this as as the conversation goes on but uh just wanted to put it on the table and uh and yeah to, to emphasize that uh i i completely agree that like um there are configurations of this nonlinear optical computer that in a sense like by default have inbuilt philosophical background assumptions and unless you tackle those all of your reasoning will have like yeah these like subtle paradoxical contradictory quality <laughs> because you're kind of like running off of those assumptions uh, without realizing it. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, and ontology as as you stated earlier, Daniel can become very hand wavy and seem kind of like futile to discuss. But uh, personally, I've I've found quite a quite a big effect on my yeah the quality of my thoughts, um, this, my sense of meaning and purpose in the world, uh, what I want to have stakes in what I what what I prioritize in my life and where what I want to do with my consciousness it's all quite a bit more compelling under the flag of idealism than it is under like dead materialism um so it's it's definitely an interesting frame and yeah I th I think Kastrup and Hoffman make a pretty good case that you could put a slightly higher prior on idealism than uh than dead materialism um, <laughs> materialism and physicalism of course as i agree with andres they they clearly explain the interface that we use to interact with the ground reality if the ground reality is consciousness like they, they do a very good job at explaining that especially newtonian physics and that but when we get to the quantum realm obviously it, it sort of starts to break down and get much much weirder um just one thing uh that we touched on there, Andres, which I thought might be interesting to bring up. And this is a question from uh, James, who's been a part of this podcast quite a bit, but he, um, he said, uh, can we have a bit of a discussion on, here we go. Um, the notion that the upper bound of valence is zero. And this is, this has relevance to, um, <laughs> to what we we're talking about just before on this, on this agnosticism. Uh, maybe you could take the lead on that Andres. And then I'd love to hear, uh, direct experiences from from frank and uh daniel on this potentially and some point before we launch in, launch into that we actually raised a number of times the question of essentialism versus uh you know things being constructed in a bunch of different ways and i think it's an important topic that underlies a bunch of this so at some point maybe we circle <laughs> back around to that if anybody finds it interesting or not sorry to interrupt but go ahead go ahead with the question you, you were wanting to talk about no yeah, I'll, I'll, so I'll definitely put a pin on that. And actually, yeah, it might be very similar to this topic. So <clears throat> apologies, apologies. So I, this comes from my conversation with uh, Roger Thiesdell. So um, we were trying to figure out like enlightenment from the point of view of uh, what at Qualia, we take very seriously this idea called uh, uh, valence structuralism. Um, I would say like that's one of the key contributions of uh, Mike Johnson, like Principia Qualia, is this idea that like the thing that determines how good or bad an experience feels like is its internal structure. 
And, you know, this sounds like very, a very superficial idea is like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, is it like pink or blue or is it like, you know, <laughs> does it look balanced or not? But I think it's like, it's actually super, super deep that like, you know, the structure of your experience has to do with actually like, there's a lot of parameters we, we usually don't realize it can be modified. For example, the smoothness of attention and awareness or the smoothness of phenomenal space or uh, the, the sort of thing that Daniel likes to talk about, which is like phase issues in, in awareness or like, you know, phase co coherence in awareness. Uh, essentially, there's like a lot of these parameters we don't realize are like modifiable. But as you experiment with different states of consciousness, you kind of like see these like broad pattern that like very um, jagged or asymmetrical, uh, sheared, broken, stressed, um, strained experiences, configurations of consciousness that have like symmetry breaking operations, broadly speaking, are like negative in valence. <laughs> Whereas like states of consciousness across the board that have like smooth geometry, symmetry, regularity, uh, homogeneity, um, continuity, tend to, to a first approximation, be positive valence. Um, and in some sense, you can de describe the valence of a given moment of experience by like pointing out the structural features of it uh, and then kind of like making a tallying and roughly speaking how many you know pinch points and shears and discontinuities a moment of experience has will be very strongly correlated with how unpleasant and how you know distracting the experiences versus like okay how how much smoothness and continuity and you know you also make a tally up and okay like that's going to be like account for how pleasant the experience is and uh okay like an extreme version of this is like if you attain like a um you know, an, a jhana state of consciousness. Okay, like things are like super smooth and like very, they present all of them kind of like at once in kind of like this like attention is, well, depending on the jhana, but attention might be more kind of like a, a regular kind of pad or some kind of kind of like homogeneous space-time folding as opposed to something pinchy and like um, uh, like pins and needles of attention that we're kind of like used to more on more everyday states of consciousness. So. This is, yeah, kind of like valence structuralism, I think, like holds up to a large extent. Now, with, within that paradigm, like what happens when you take it to the extreme is like, okay, what would a perfectly positive experience be? <laughs> well, in this paradigm would be one that has no symmetry, symmetry breaking operations at all, meaning it's an experience that has like zero information content. There's every way you look at it it looks exactly the same. There's no way of uh, breaking its symmetry. Um, it's almost kind of thinking of it as the perfect sphere <laughs> of consciousness or something like that. It doesn't matter how you rotate it, it it's going to be exactly the same. And um, that sort of experience, I think, in the psychedelic domain, it would probably be like a peak 5-MeO DMT experience, which has like just absolutely no content. It's just pure consciousness beyond. It's not even just like pure space or pure mind. It's like something even deeper than that. And I think like on, you know, meditation lingo, you know, maybe the 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 eighth or the, or the ninth jhana probably are like in that space. But even more than that, I think like cessations and uh, and uh, Niroda Samapati at, at the extreme, uh, which I have not experienced. But of course, I've read the description of it on, uh, on Daniel's book. Uh, but it, it sort of has like all of these like signatures of like, you know, an experience so devoid of information that it feels like you had never even been born that like the concept of there being like separate beings is you know doesn't even has not even a, a reason as a possibility um and like i mean I'd, 
that sort of thing does happen on, on a breakthrough 5MEO DMT experience. But, but then it's, in some sense, you could argue that's almost a non-experience. So there's this weird implication, maybe, that like actually any information content is a downgrade from these like perfectly symmetrical zero state. It's pretty uh, much or, what the Buddha said. Yeah, <laughs> as, a, as a Shenzhen Young says, I think like the, the phrase he says something is like, uh, relative to Nirvana, everything hurts. And then Nirvana is this weird thing that is like neither a thing nor a, not a thing is this, yeah, trans, <laughs> transcendent thing, but it has no information. So it's kind of like this zero, zero state. And uh, there's two interpretations here. I'll just finish with that, which is that like, A, it actually like absolutely just nothing exists. Um, you, you actually just do not have any any being as it were during Neurota Semapati is like complete actual disappearance. A different interpretation is that you are actually completely real and existing is just that you're having a state of consciousness with zero information content. But it doesn't mean that you're not real. And like that actually makes a big difference where like in the first case, you might say like, yeah, actually the the optimal state is just non-existence. In the second case, it's like, no, 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 you're, you're having a great time. Is You just can't remember anything about it because there's just no information residue. <laughs> and, and they actually, I would think like, yeah, probably imply very different things about like what would be the optimal state of the universe. In, in the second one, you, you actually do want <laughs> nervous systems. It's just like in the, yeah, in as close to zero information content as possible. Yeah, I think the, the, the movement from, uh, you know, pre-awakening to awakening is kind of like, you know, the movement from a symmetrical state of perception or consciousness to a more symmetrical state of consciousness. If you look at like good, if you look at like good art and like even a like good physique or bodybuilder, you know, whatever is pleasing to look at, even just like, you know, your face, aesthetic people have more symmetrical face and like good art and good music have like, you know, really balanced and uh, symmetrical uh, harmonies and just things like that. Um, and same with consciousness, I think. You know, just like the pre-awakening state where you're just, you're, you're a person, your character's stuck in the head and your attention, you know, the arrow of attention is just pointed that way. That's not a very symmetrical state. Everything's being filtered through like the center. And then once you started to construct the center and then more and more and more, and at the end where everything's just aware of itself, like a sensation, you know, you sort of like, if size, sound and the body sensations and um, emotions and thoughts, they're all just being rendered as sensate experiences happening by itself exactly where they are. That's a state of, uh, I would say a very uh, symmetrical state, uh, state of balance compared to the, the pre-awakened state. And if you, you know, go even deeper, and like you said before, the state of association where it's like a perfect, perfect balance state that nothing exists. And in a sense, like everything just like blinks out. So it's almost like, you know, zzz, and then, you know, like the universe is like perceiving itself so much so that, you know, it just blinks out. Kind of like, you know how like, you know, you put like, I don't know how to describe it, but if you put like two mirrors or something like that, against each other you just get into like this is like you know, the sound like bounces up each other at the end it's kind of explodes kind of like that so <laughs> so i guess the perfect symmetrical state is like death or something you know the, the, the unfabricated state uh, the unconditioned state where you know there is no experience at all no no perceptions <laughs> uh, maybe we can't experience a perfect symmetrical state like you know once we, there is experience then there is you know a little bit of suffering right uh, mm -hmm. And you know, like the the, the most uh, most quote unquote peaceful state, you know, if from the Buddhist point of view, is uh, is death, is nibbana, is nibbana uh, lights out. So, <laughs> but, but very specifically, the death of someone who had dissolved 
the illusions, right? So parinibbana, you know, if you look at the Buddhist, the Buddhist contract in the fine print says the punchline is parinibbana, right? So that would be the death of an arahat from a old school Theravada point of view, which then brings in the whole curious question of the bodhisattva, right? That no, really, the optimal thing is to wake up all beings, because how can you say you're separate and and all of that, right? So. And and this this leaves the question of, you know, is basically anything below zero is just different degrees of suffering, but we perceive it as valence, <laughs> and it's just it's just this ladder of suffering that gets less suffering over time until there's no suffering. What like what <laughs> yeah. is what is valence? What is high valence if there's zero informational content? Yeah. How do you how do you so, even so, feel or experience valence as a thing? Right. I I do I do think so. This, this is definitely where like recipe and review gets gets mixed up, I think. And like, it, it is kind of an issue. Um, there's like, actually a deep conceptual issue here, potentially in that, like, I think it actually, it might be wise in some circumstances to actually, yes, believe that like, you know, there's um, no positive valence, that positive valence is kind of a illusory. I think like in some cases that can be wise because in, in that sense, like it prevents certain kinds of existential clinging and and uh, an attachment they're like okay that's 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 good at the same time i think it's not exactly true <laughs> i do think there is like states that are like somewhat better than than uh, than just no non-existence uh it's just that they tend to be fairly unsustainable at least in our current build um i i hope you know that with uh, some like mild modifications we could all potentially be in a constant MDMA-like state of consciousness without kind of a, <laughs> a corresponding hangover or neurotoxicity. <laughs> um, I think, uh, so, okay, like so, something something to try to articulate like wh where I'm coming on uh, from here is uh, Roger Thiesel emphasized like, okay, the, the importance of uh, realizing, you know, the imp impermanence. Okay, the imper like one of the three characteristics, you know, in, 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 in Buddhist circles um, that like, there is no such thing as like um, permanent satisfaction. Well, okay, like that actually would be mixing too. But yeah, essentially, there's let's say like a no permanent satisfaction. That like if you truly believe in kind of like this, like like ah, like this is a satisfying experience. You're doing something to your experience that is like reifying a particular kind of existential illusion that down the line will yeah cause like a unpleasant sensations. So you're reifying something, um, which eventually breaks down, and that that that's a cause for suffering. But I think like, in some sense, uh, if you if you strongly believe that, yeah, like, n nothingness is the, the the optimal state, you can almost think of it as kind of like, that's the outcome of, of like a reinforcement learning algorithm that has actually learned kind of this at a meta level that like, believing in pleasure and satisfaction down the line actually feels worse. So in some sense, you're kind of like, training yourself to have this particular ontological view of reality because pragmatically it actually makes you feel better uh, like in a long enough time scale like and if you're talking about like yeah somebody who yeah meditates a lot like like lo the time horizon kind of like expands and people kind of yeah in some sense like think you know it'll be lo a longer term in terms of like their hedonic hedonic tone they're not going to be <laughs> as prone to kind of like fall into the illusion of cocaine and likewise they're, they're going to be less prone to fall into the illusion of yeah believing mm -hmm. in the permanence of, of satisfaction or something like that but but again i think like yeah, that, that it's important to not confuse review and recipe in that like 
I think it could very well be that like, you know, objectively, you know, a, a, an orgasm on, on methamphetamine, like it really is like a really positive high valence thing. It's just that like treating it that way <laughs> is unwise from the point of view of like further, you know, down the line constructions and verifications. So, uh, which is, yeah, uh, in some sense, I, I do think, you know, having a, a heaven world, uh, you know, party going on, it's probably better than just like absolutely nothing happening. <laughs> but pragmatically, you know, there might be enough side effects and, you know, down the line consequences of that, that I'm, I'd, I'd be happy to say like, okay, no, maybe nothingness is better if that's a way to prevent, yeah, extreme suffering <laughs> in the long term. Yeah, I, I do describe the state as uh, as being sort of like a like a prolonged uh, permanent like LSD plus times a Mali trip a little bit. LSD like very, times, yeah. So like yeah. you're con constantly yeah. candy flipping. Yeah, I mean, not, not as strong as actually taking a drug, not like to that extent, uh, but it's it does feel a little like that. If I have to describe the state to someone who's who hasn't experienced it um, firsthand or who hasn't had any meditative experiences. Um, but had some kind of like, you know, psychedelic drug experiences, I would tell them like, yeah, the, maybe the close, one of the closest uh, analogy would be, one of the closest way you can relate to it is kind of like a, like a candy flipping state where you emotionally very, uh, the well-being well emotionally is very positive, very balanced emotionally and perceptually where you describe um, the sphere of consciousness. Yeah, it, it does feel like, you know, before it was just like consciousness, it was like, you know, there's a direct, you know, arrow to consciousness and there's a separation, everything's verified. There's the, the subject in the center here, there's the object right there and there's the duality, everything's a state of duality versus where this is just like the whole sphere, um, like you're trying to 60 panoramic view like all the time. And uh, yeah, so emotionally balanced and uh, perceptually balanced and uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, tripping on LSD and Molly all the time, yeah. That's amazing. I'll, uh, can I follow up on that? I'll, <clears throat> I'm, I'm very curious. So um, these actually, so like this might be kind of like on the most most contentful things that I'll probably say tonight, which is like, uh, and ho hopefully if, if I can get a, yeah, maybe some reflection or like um, uh, impression from you guys, like if, 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 if you guys think this is like going in the right direction, essentially. So this is kind of like circling back briefly to this idea that, yeah, my current model is that like the nervous system is a nonlinear optical system. So here's what is going on. The first approximation, <laughs> essentially, there are these reifications in our nervous system, which are what in this model, they would be like essentially energized nonlinearities. <laughs> to, to a first approximation, um, there are like two kinds of waves. There's like linear waves and there's like nonlinear waves. Um, essentially, linear waves is like what we usually, you know, learn in high school. It's like waves that go through each other, and like sound is like that. Like water, you know, waves in water tend to be like that. But there's also a whole category of waves that are called nonlinear uh, that behave in different ways. And uh, usually, you know, they may require like high energies or a particular medium. But uh, just to give you an example, maybe you've you've been in in a beach environment uh, where like you see two large kind of like waves bounce off of each other like maybe you've seen that phenomenon so that's that's not the waves just going through like if you have like shallow water and like very high energies the waves start to behave almost kind of like in a particle strange way like there's also this thing called uh, solitons oh it's, or it's kind of like sometimes like because of the nonlinearities of, of these waves water can actually travel as kind of like a particle <laughs> in, in, it's very very bizarre behavior but essentially um when a wave is linear, that's 
it's called that it follows the superposition principle that you can kind of like just think of the waves separately and like follow their trajectory separately and they just go through each other when the medium is is not linear then you actually have to track like how they interact with one another so um essentially what i what i claim is that the reifications that we experience in everyday life are essentially like stable non-linear attractors then when you make a representation and you reify it there is kind of like energy and oscillations in your world simulation that are like bouncing off of each other and trapped in that reification um and so and we have like a ton of those i mean essentially the um this concept of you know the storehouse consciousness or different views of the subconscious is like yeah we have like this huge pile of like reified objects that I mean, for most people, they will have kind of huge uh, dualistic undercurrents and, and vibes. And um, in some sense, like uh, during meditation, especially like inside practice, what you're learning to do is to avoid energizing those representations. So there's like all of these techniques of kind of a, you know, cutting through with Vajra awareness or, or noting or like, oh, notice the emptiness of things is ways to essentially avoid the energy getting trapped into those reifications, those non-linearities that are essentially trapping the energy and, uh, and solidifying them. Uh, so as you do more and more inside practice, what will roughly start to happen is that these reifications will start to break down because you're in a sense like failing to maintain them. You're failing to inject energy into them to essentially vivify and reify them uh, every time you bring them up and so over time they actually kind of shake themselves apart and like i think like this may explain the uh, stages of insight like that what parts of your world simulation you stop energizing on their own terms and you kind of like keep energizing you know like empty space or pure awareness or something that doesn't create like these reifications uh, and non-linearities and there's going to be yeah this kind of predictable breakdown of the world simulation starting from like you know raw sensate level of you know colors and textures all the way to like the the crazier stages of insight uh where like your actual self model breaks down and like maybe like you know <laughs> the world was shaking apart and like breaking up but all of a sudden and okay that's maybe like weird and trippy but all of a sudden your sense of self is also breaking up and like shaking and and <laughs> and, and defragmenting and uh discombobulating and like you know that can be really shocking for for a lot of people um but but on the whole you know in this paradigm essentially what you're doing with the stages of insight is actually breaking up the non-linearities that have been accumulated in your nervous system and at the extreme this would essentially like the the final attractor here is a state of consciousness that essentially lacks any of these like enduring reifications such that naturally the homeostasis that you're cultivating is one where consciousness behaves in as linear of a way as possible and like the waves of energy they stop actually bouncing off of each other in uncontrollable waves you know that give rise to kind of conceptual proliferation and things like that and instead, you just have the waves of energies that just go through each other without, yeah, causing causing stress or asymmetries or, or uh, anyway. I said a lot, but I I, I want to see if this resonates or if you guys uh, think of this is makes sense or or not. I think from a direct experiential um, point of view, the um, sort of like the stages of insights is almost like you know moving towards the state of balance. You know, you have the like the dark night and the rising passing away, which is two sides of the same coin which is not very symmetrical, you know, once, you know, experiencing like spiritual lows and 
you know, mystical highs of the highest states, kind of like, you know, peak psychedelic trip, whatever, and you go to the stage of equanimity and that's moving closer to a state of balance and then finally you have a cessation. And theoretically, that's supposed to be the most balanced state, right? And also um, when all your different sense doors, uh, before it was like, you know, the sight sounds, all different, different uh, separate sense doors, that, that's not very symmetrical. And then when you merge all the sense doors together as one unified sense door, that's a state of um, more balanced state of symmetry. Um, also, when you look at, like, let's just say if the brain is modeling reality, um, this is holodeck, we, don't, we can't have direct access to it, but our brain is somehow modeling it. And in a way, I guess you could describe awakening as being like having like almost a perfect model of the, the holodeck of what's out there and what's in here. So it's like a one-to-one -one model, hmm. uh, where before it wasn't a one-to-one -one model because there is no separate self or there is no center in this hologram of reality, but you as a separate self, uh, pre-awakening, you construct that avatar in the head. Uh, so you enter what's uh, more or less symmetrical in this holodeck, or this just, you know, just particle sensation, whatever. Um, you sort of filter that and you create a separate entity here and your experience is being filtered through that, which is uh, not a very symmetric, the, the egoic state is not a very symmetric thing, right? Yeah. But when you start to deconstruct the center, start to deconstruct the eye, um, and then your the, the the holodeck or the model of the holodeck in your brain uh, experienced subjectively when that's closer to what it really is out there even though you can't perceive it so maybe whatever you even though you can't perceive what's out there maybe like the the modeling that this goes on inside your head is in a perfect symmetrical like model the one-to-one you know um sort of the relation with what's out there i don't know if that makes sense <laughs> i think it i think it does um <laughs> the the thing i'll mention uh yeah the, the thing i'll mention here is that uh uh in in, in our theory of uh, valence and consciousness essentially the the thing that the nervous system is trying to do is minimize dissonance and like there's two, yeah, two sources yeah two, two key sources of dissonance and asymmetries one is like out of phase interactions between the layers of perceptual processing which uh essentially yeah we're trying to <clears throat> make as good of a prediction as possible about the world so that things don't surprise us and surprises are kind of these out of phase interactions yeah yeah and then the other thing that we're also trying to do is minimize model complexity is like within right. your world experience like like trying to make as simple of a model of the world as possible because yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's so like yeah. the, the, what you're describing to me sounds like it may not be that you're like you know actually rendering the world perfectly but Maybe, yeah. yeah, like yeah, yeah maybe, with, maybe I'm not monitoring direct, but it's closer to like you know, it's there's less information, like you said, because like thoughts and like the, a lot of the egoic thoughts or whatever it goes on in the head, or you know, just the filtering of like the separation, um, does create more information. That's why you know, yeah, you, you think more. And, yeah, like it, it sounds like your your layers of your perceptual hierarchy are synced up. And like that would essentially be. Up. Uh, I mean, as a matter of direct experience, it's synced up to itself. Everything is synced up to itself. But if you want to look at it as like, let's just assume that there is a brain here modeling it's something else out there. I guess the state is like from the pre-awakened state, pre-awakened state, it's almost like going from a state of like not modeling as exactly as it is, but you know, getting closer and closer to modeling without uh, like noise and information, extra noise and information added on by by um the, the illusion of the separation things like that do, do you guys do you guys know uh uh page rank are you aware of page rank the no. so the page rank is a algorithm in graph uh to analyze graphs and it's like the it was kind of like the thing that uh originally made google kind of like fun and interesting that like 
it was one of the features by which they would like rank websites. So essentially mm -hmm. what they do is uh, they make this huge graph of like the links of how one website li links to another. Um, you get, okay, like each node is one website and each directed link is each of the edges essentially like represents a link from one web website to another. Then what, what you can do is like imagine that like you're one person on the internet and you're like randomly going from one website to another in kind of these like random walk by like traversing links. So what PageRank does is calculate the probability that the person will be in a particular node. So essentially you can think of it as kind of like a flow is like, okay, there's like water that is going from one link to another. And so like links that have a lot of links to them will have a higher page rank that kind of like, that's where like water accumulates or not even that you could have like a link where you could have a node that has like fairly few links, but as long as those links come from very important nodes, they can also have a pretty large page rank. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like the, the, the emperor doesn't need to know a lot of people, just needs to know the right kind of people, right? So um, the, the analogy here is that um, I think, you know, if our actual experience, uh, the, the way our world simulation gets constructed is through kind of like a nonlinear optical system, uh, in a sense, like most of our experience would actually be made of kind of like tiny reflectors for attention that like each part of experience is kind of like um, telling attention where to move next. Uh, so in a sense, like all of your experience is kind of this gigantic graph where like attention is defuminating and reflecting off of each of the elements. And usually the, 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 this model essentially what I'm getting at is that in normal everyday life experience for most people, they start out with a default shape of the graph where there's like a gigantic kind of like core or gigantic node uh, or set of nodes that are kind of like organizing most of the information and where all of the uh, kind of like flow is reflecting into and out of. Um, and that would be kind of like the ingrained sense of self and feeling of separateness. And uh, I think like what, you know, hardcore insight practice is doing in a way is jail breaking out of that. So like, again, because of the nature of the non-linearities of our experience, what you believe in, you reify, you make stronger. So like every time you actually engage with this kind of like big central node, you're reifying the sense of self. But uh, if you keep in a sense, kind of like trying to jailbreak, and I think like a lot of like inside practice is kind of like jailbreaking out of this model, uh, you, get, you get the flow of awareness actually to distribute more homogeneously throughout the graph. And I think like potentially a model for like no self or like fourth path might be where you actually have like broken down the graph to a state where the awareness gets homogeneously distributed across it by default. And that's kind of like the, the normal everyday state would be like one where like there's no center and the awareness is like actually reflecting off of the entire graph and it's uh, anti-fragile. Like it doesn't snap back into the, <laughs> the previous form of organization. Mm. And so you need some kind of like, yeah, like jailbreak into that and then reinforce that and make that anti-fragile or like make it more anti-fragile than the previous configuration. So anyway, I, I said a bunch of things, but I'm curious uh, if this model resonates uh, with you guys, like, yeah, Daniel and, uh, and Frank. Yep. Yeah, so there's a lot in there. I, I kept, I, I found myself wanting to run the notion of nonlinear waves and these sort of sticking points or solons or whatever, these, these things that seem to have a, a more of a durability to them or a particle-like nature. I then wanted to take that concept and apply it to a bunch of different domains of human experience. So from a very pure Vipassana point of view, as I conceive of it, 
experientially and sort of at a pure perceptual level, that's what it's doing, right? So take, you know, Vipassana taken to a sort of logical, pure extreme of you're just seeing all sensations move through without the possibility of any sensation grasping any other, fixing any other, freezing any other, interfering with any other in some fun fundamental perceptual way. I would agree that is doing that. And that, that the lack of the possibility of this color here and this texture here, actually imagining they were perceiving each other, grasping each other, fixing each other from a sort of a dependent origination point of view. When ignorance is gone, it's no longer possible for any of these things to imagine or functionally be really, you know, having this sort of existential meaning sense as well as the experience of the sense that they are, in fact, doing this weird graspy, fixy, freezy thing. Right. So that I will agree with. However, I also then was thinking about all the other levels. So I suddenly kind of waxed Tibetan-y for a second and said, well, there are other kind of levels on which you might have this sense of a nonlinear wave that has some sort of sticking or staying power to it. And psychologically, I think there's also work to be done that is not quite the same as what Vipassana does, sort of from an experiential point of view, but from another conditioning point of view, I also thought that psychology is kind of in some ways its own thing. And the perceptual transformation of what I would call fourth path affects a lot of that, but it doesn't totally like remove all sort of nonlinear psychological waves instantly. Hmm. And then I thought another, so that's sort of like, uh, I'm going to call that a some like a Dharmakaya lens, a Sambhogakaya lens, a Nirmanakaya lens, just in some Tibetans going to hate me for the way I just crudely represented these things, but or sort of like we could back off of that proprietary terminology and say from a pure experiential sixth sense door kind of a lens, from a psychological lens, and then from a sort of a materialist kind of lens. Because I'll also claim the facts of materiality seem to have a wave doesn't move through it nonlinearity to them. You know, as I, the, these things appear kind of nonlinear and that things crash into each other sort of point of view. And so to realize the true nonlinear, sorry, the true linearity of all systems would seemingly require parinibbana because it's hard to imagine a total lack of psychological models or constructs from a functional psychological working point of view that everything would just move through and not have some sense of a functional some you know something to it in the way we interact with people we need to uh, maintain some sense of object permanence or you know take the past and a predicted future into account and do these things that seem non-linear to me, as well as the simple facts of materiality, of crystal formation, of, of you know, states of matter, of these kinds of things seem to have a, a non-linearity to them from that wavian point of view. So I'm just going to kind of add that to the mix and see what you, th you all think of that. I'll uh, quick, <clears throat> maybe quickly address that, which is, um, I think in this model, for sure, um, even just interacting with the world around you as you guys are doing, like it does obviously involve like nonlinearities and like even representing solidity, like at all, like will require these nonlinearities essentially to <laughs> have the waves of energy in your world simulation bounce off of things. Um, and like, yes, in power in Urbana <laughs> or in high dose 5 meo DMT, like that goes away. Like <laughs> <laughs> it actually stops being, you know, there's just no solidity in those uh, states of consciousness. Um, the the key for like whether this would be kind of like an enduring fourth path or not would be essentially what is the 
direction of homeostasis. We're like, uh, in a normal, normal kind of person experience, essentially the balance of how much they reify versus how much they defabricate, or sorry, they de-reify, is either like in, in, in kind of like a net homeostasis or in a positive direction, meaning that they're reifying more than they are like defabricating. And so like over time, <laughs> the world simulation actually becomes more heavy and like kind of like more reified and, and so on. So uh, kind of like a, 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 you know, state versus trait change. A, a trait change might be one where essentially you've meditated enough in a particular way that like on a day-to-day -day basis, you only reify enough for functionality but the net balance of reification is essentially either on the negative or, or or close to it so that essentially you're like tending towards a, a, as least of a reified of an experience as is possible essentially um does that make sense so you meant negative in comparison to baseline there would still be some subtle rarefication it would just be diminished right yeah yeah and then like um if you didn't interact with the world it would tend towards zero so like, um, yeah, like, I'm as you say, a... go ahead. I was just gonna say, as you say, Frank, you're still got a meat body that you have to feed and deal with. Right. And that's, that's seems to be solid, at least in a, in this world simulation. So, you know, eliminating all that entirely seems like it just would be death. So maybe this... right, right. Go, go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to throw one more thing in here. So the, the Buddhists, at least as, as I understand the three trainings, basically built into the sort of ontological flexibility into the system, right? Where the, they would actually, I think from Buddhist point of view, say that you've got to adopt a number of pragmatic ontological frames, which are actually in some ways contradictory to actually function well. It's kind of like a little more prescripted chaos magic version of things, right? Where it, the, the, none of these ontologies are necessarily absolutely true, but each of them might be useful in particular practical situations, but with a little bit of more structure to that. And so that would be that when existing in meat space with other people, training and morality assumes a past and a future. It assumes object permanence. It assumes karma. It might assume previous or future lives or a wheel of suffering to get off of. Um, it, it assumes time, it assumes causality, it assumes all of these things that are useful. It, it assumes that, you know, basic um, ordinary human ethics and stuff apply in a structurally, functionally and not analyzable way. And if you extrapolate, extrapolate that to technology, that technology, which assumes a past, a future, structure, function, laws, that logical extrapolation from that past to a future holds, that's essentially the, the assumptions of engineering and most of physics and science, right? So that they, they have the same underlying structure as well as psychology, human psychology, which also fills, fill, fill, falls within that ontological frame that you assume other people, you assume there's better or ways worse, you know, better or worse ways to interact with them, etc. And so it's assuming all those ontological frames, regardless of their ultimate, you know, status. And then the, the middle one, which we haven't really, we've talked about some from the Janic point of view, really sort of takes a much more refined version of that. So you're still assuming will that you can get into these states. You're still assuming that these states have some 
uh, you know, that you can get into boundless consciousness and that boundless consciousness in that moment is a thing that you can get into and sustain. And that if you've been in it a while, it's the same state you've been in. So it assumes sort of an object permanence and stuff, even if these can get very rare, reified and abstracted, right? And that these are positive things to cultivate versus other things that are not positive things to cultivate, right? So you get into this, but it's a, a refined one. And that same thing also is sort of like the assumptions of substances and what they can do. Like when you say 5-MeO, it's got a lot of the same assumptions functionally as jhanas, right? So there, there's sort of ontological functional equivalence there, right? Which is why we tend to you keep mentioning them in similar breaths, you know, but it's this amazing reoffend state, but it's transient, right? So, you know, it involves those senses of temporality and things. And then, but the last one, then when we suddenly flip into an insight frame, we, we talk about radical empirical primacy. We talk about, you know, atemporality. You can't even find causality when you assume radical, you know, a, you know, atemporality because there's literally just this dissolving moment. And so you couldn't even find a true cause and a true effect that you can, you know, extrapolate from anything other than extrapolation. <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, and so, uh, and so we, we're shifting between these frames, and it's just having the metacognitive awareness that when we're having this conversation, we even sometimes within the same sentences, we're shifting between these different ontological frames. And just so that the, the listener or viewer can keep up, it's just worth having that in mind as we do this. And then as I think about you know, sort of theories of like waves, like assuming nonlinear waves that have this sort of this platonic universal to them, this assumption of object permanence, this whatever kind of those sorts of assumptions we're applying to things, clearly are incredibly useful for the first two trainings and for functioning in those first two trainings kind of way. And then, but yet when doing insight practices or things that are make one prone to insight, the, the a diametrically opposed set of assumptions just happens to clearly be pragmatically useful and in some ways descriptive of result. Is that? Yeah, this is this kind of modal ontology that I've, I think I've spoken with potentially all three of you about uh, when we talked about uh, personal identity and, and what, yeah. what we are and, and how we, we use these different assumptions throughout life by necessity. I also wanted actually to speak to Frank's, Frank's thing about MDMA and LSD. I, I've never done MDMA or any of the amphetamines and I don't know if I've done LSD. That's a question of whether or not something might have had some in it. I don't, I don't know. Um, but this sense of there is something delightful there is something really good about a mind where it feels beyond synchronized because synchronized would sort of imply two things that are in phase where this right. is like the next layer of that where everything is just right. in phase with itself. Yeah, right? no so it's, 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 it's the, the better version of synchronized. Right, right, right. right, where the the problem of yeah, so that is there is something delightful about that. There is something, and it's hard to explain how it's delightful because it's not like painful and unpleasant things can't arise, but right. there is something much nicer about it. It's just, right. and it's a reliably much nicer thing because it's like a virus on your computer that has stopped functioning, where right, it's right. no longer taking up all the bandwidth of doing something. Right, it, there's something really nice in that not happening that right, right. not fixing, freezing, attempting to grasp or whatever in that, that right. holodeckian point of view, if that's a word I can coin. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, speaking of, speaking about like bandwidth, it does take a lot of energy to maintain like a sense of separation. Like when I used to work out, like I used to get tired before when I before I dissolved the center point and there was still a lot of separation solidity in the body. Man, where I was lifting, it feels like I was lifting weights from like from in here, and then I would get out of breath, and then it feels like I was eating my body when I lifted weights. My conditioning just all of a sudden got way better. Um, after realization where I, when I lift weight, it doesn't feel like yeah, it's, my it doesn't feel like I'm doing it from inside the body. It just feels like the, it's hard to explain like with the, without the, the, the person taking credit and the agency in here, like trying to lift the weights where, you know, even just, you know, one cluster of sensation, taking, taking credit, trying to take credit for another cluster of sensation. That takes a lot of energy. Yeah, so without that, when I lift weights, like I don't get out of breath anymore. And I sleep like four or five hours a day. Like just like all of a sudden, like just flipped inside out. It's really weird, and then it just feels like the it feels like the universe is lifting itself <laughs> instead of like the yeah. person weights. Yeah, and everything is kind of like that, and it, and then you just have way more energy for other stuff because we, I think it's uh, the the pre awakened state. We we spend so much energy just you know just maintaining that illusion. It's uh, it's hard to find like energy for it. Uh, it's it's it frees up a lot of bandwidth, as Daniel says for. For different things and then when i used to read books and it feels like i'm like just racking my brain trying to understand the concept but now when i read a book it's just like oh the, the book is just kind of reading itself over here and then it doesn't feel like you're you, the, the brain is like reading the book it doesn't feel like it's it's there's something in the book here and then it's been filtered through the brain here and then you actually have to think really hard and racking your brain and when, when watching a movie it's just the, the movie's just watching itself and it's just figuring out itself it's just um the plot is just you know unfolding like by its on its own you don't have to like analyze it thinking about it from like over here because that's just like, you know, like Daniel said, just a little, all the, you know, grasping was just like, you know, once you kind of unhook that uh, assumption that, you know, this cluster of sensation is, is like taking credit for this other cluster of sensation where everything's just like in its own place and everything just becomes uh, like delightful is a, is a good word. It's a lot more uh, chill. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a circuit board with a bunch of resistors in it and that's the self and then you remove all the resistors yeah, and then there's this free yeah, flow of energy and, and you get a lot more. Yeah out of it and I, I found it really interesting talking to you frank about how your performance improved your musical performance improved you didn't need as much sleep you didn't seem to be getting sick as often had a lot more energy um just goes to show how much of energy is invested in that that uh maintaining that separate it's side like kind of energy instead of like before I'll, I'll feel a lot of energy just like in the body mind where i'll feel like really manic but now like the energy is being sort of like just dissipated like throughout the field you know what I mean? It's just like, it's not like, it doesn't feel like I'm exerting the energy. When I lift weights, it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm like exerting the energy to move the weights. It's just like the weights kind of like moving itself in, in a sense um, without, you know, the sense of like, you know, being having an agent here, being in control of the weights. Mm. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if um, the only state that I've been in that was analogous to that was it was stronger doses of ketamine. And I don't know if anyone here has tried <laughs> ketamine, but uh, it had it happen where, yeah, everything kind of feels much more fluid. It feels like the sense of self disappears. It feels like agency disappears and things are just unfolding and your character, the character of Ryan is responding the same way, laughing at the same things that the character would laugh at. Uh, it's an right, aesthetic right. as well. So you, 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 if you're lifting things up, it feels completely effortless, but it's quite a bit, it's, it's quite, um, for someone that has very deep seated, uh, materialist, uh, 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 ontology and the ontology that I have a, a sense of self, you know, it's just been around since uh, probably since I've had object permanence as a child, it's been there the whole time. It's very deeply embedded probably in my nervous system at this point. 
<clears throat> the first time I experienced that, it was very disconcerting. It was like, this is bizarre. I don't seem to have agency, but things are happening and the characters doing the same thing. And I'm kind of observing myself from a distance in the corner of the room, but I'm still here. My friend's talking about a fridge and this is a bizarre conversation and what's going on. That's happened to me a couple of times. And I imagine it's, I wonder if it's analogous. I don't know. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of situations, drug-induced and otherwise, where people get tastes and hints of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all over. It is, it is the true nature of everything. And so it's not surprising that these qualities break through mm -hmm. sometimes. And there are lots of situations. Yeah, obviously, yeah, ketamine is one of the ones that people mention, 5-MeO. There's all kinds, you know, people get into flow states, you know, doing sports or uh, crafts or music or what, just watching nature or whatever it is. There are all these states... That are, where it's constantly saying, hey, this is actually, like, actually is a funny word, but, you know, um, it's it's hard not to give that some sort of sense of this is the way things are. Things are actually happening causally. And that might be purely conditioned by the fact that the mode that observes everything is causally happening just naturally on its own just happens to be so much nicer, um, regardless of mm -hmm. whether or not you think that's what's driving my sense that that's what's actually true. But people are constantly having the experiences of things changing, of things happening on their own. They took a whole shower and they can't remember showering and they have no sense <laughs> that they took the shower. They drove to work and they have no sense that there were an agent that drove themselves to work. You know, and, and reality is constantly screaming out, hey, notice these things. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's, it's not a surprise that lots of uh, situations in which our um, habitual ignorance is derailed might uh, have these things uh, poke through and shine through. It's like transient yeah. awakening potentially can happen. Yeah, or taste of it, the insights, right? So insights into how things are, right? So there's lots of insights one can have that they don't, they don't sort of permanently stop the process of identification, but they certainly seem to temporarily substantially pause it or substantially reduce it in some way that is quite significant. Hmm. Yeah, I think what psychedelic does is sort of uh, make the make your brain more malleable. It's like dissolve the solidity of your experience. Like what this, when you take a psychedelics, you, you know, and when you move from you know first path to fourth path, whatever, it, it's just kind of like dissolving solidity from your experience becomes less solidified in a sense. It's kind of like you know the difference between dream and reality is also that you know the the. the in a dream, your your perception and your experience is less solidified. So you're kind of dissolving from solidity to like liquid to like smoke to the air. So like psychedelics, you, you go you go from the solidity to the air in like one one to like hundred hundred um, miles an hour like that five amino DMT. It's like you know ten seconds you go from like solidity to air. But with like meditation, <laughs> you sort of dissolve the solidity. You know over time, it becomes sort of like ingrained to your your nervous system and your wire your brain. So, yeah. so I think that the, the movement from a more solidified state to a less solidified state sort of explains like the, the, those glimpses. Um, yeah, I don't know if that, that's what I mean. Makes sense. So Makes that's sense. another way to explain like sort of um, another interpretation of the, uh, the more balanced state. I guess the more solidified state is a less symmetrical state. So where it's so, like you move from like solidity of the objects to like the liquid that's a little bit more uh, balanced and more symmetrical and then you, you go from that to like smoke and then it's all like you know and then to air which everything is just like uh, dissipated yeah yeah mm. so it's like it's that it makes your brain a little bit more malleable and less solidified 
But then when you become here, you can also re-solidify because antennas and form are identical. So you, like we said earlier, um, when you interact with people in, as a Mitsu, you kind of have to, even though yeah, everything is empty, you kind of have to like put yourself in a more solidified state. But then because you, as, as uh, when you become smoke, it's easy to like, you know, you can do itself into like an object, but you perceive the object to be, you know, transient and empty as well, even though it's an object, it's form, but it, you perceive it as being empty ultimately. So you have this like, you know, different spectrums to play with. But then if you only the solidify object, it's hard to like, you know, boom, just, you know, become air or something. But if you become like air or smoke, it's in a sense, it's like you do, you know, go back and reify yourself uh, depending on like, you know, situations and like you do at the moment. When the, when the creators of Marvel uh, become awakened, yeah. they're gonna, they're gonna make some, uh, some smoke, smoke spirit movies. Uh, I think that, I mean, what, what Frank is really is pointing at is very real, which is uh, essentially the contents of your world simulation can have like different states and phases, kind of like similar to phases of matter. And like, yes, there is kind of a liquefied version of pretty much any content of your subconscious <laughs> that you can think of. Um, there's also kind of like a gas or plasma version of it. Um, but here's the thing. So I'll actually take a step back and say like, um, uh, you know, as a matter of introduction, like, if you ask me like years ago, is like, did I give any credence to kind of a meditation on the, the four elements or the five elements or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I would have said like, yeah, no, that's just very silly or just like self-suggestion. Um, now that, I, you know, I've actually invested like a good number of hours, like doing like element meditations and, and things like that. I think I have like a, an explanation for like what is going on and like why actually they, they are kind of like mind altering things. Like if you meditate on the element of fire a lot, this particular states of consciousness that you can access. So essentially, I think like the ontology to begin with is kind of deceptive. I don't think, you know, it, the four elements, the five elements really carve this uh, space at its joints, but it's, it's in some sense like highlighting elements of something larger. So like, you know, similar in alchemy, you had, you know, water, earth, fire, and so on. And like, okay, it turns out that you know, physically there's like, you know, the 120 like actual elements, you know, helium and carbon and, and things like that. But there's like some vague correlation between those and, and the other ones, right? Like there's like a whole lot of elements that kind of like behave in a metallic way and a whole lot of elements that are kind of like behaving in a gaseous way and so on. Um, so I think like it's gonna be the same for like meditation or states of consciousness. So like actually the thing that you're getting at with these different kinds of meditations are what you're selecting is self-organizing principles so essentially i think like when you're like meditating on fire and like kind of like becoming fire and letting fire kind of like propagate throughout your nervous system and purify you and doing kind of these uh, these like shaky you know vibrant thing that is like selecting for essentially a sort of like reaction diffusion type of self-organizing principle where essentially like each region of the nervous system is going to be subtly exciting the neighboring ones and subtly inhibiting the ones that are further away, similar to, you know, like fire is heating up the things right next to it, but also it's exhausting oxygen. So it will create like these like funky kind of checkerboard patterns. You know, you can't have like homogeneous fire. Like that's pretty difficult because it exhausts its own oxygen. Um, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that like, I think of these things as like choosing self-organizing principles for the nonlinear waves, uh, for how they operate, how they, how they behave. Um, and essentially, like you can take an internal representation that was like forged 
with a certain self-organizing principle and then apply to it a new self-organizing principle to reforge it. So if something was forged in, <laughs> in hate, for example, it's going to have like all of these like inner tension and internal sense of duality stuck to it. If you reforge it, but within, you know, a, a, a loving kindness container, you're actually going to be kind of like liquefying it. And as it recrystallizes, it's going to crystallize in a much more uh, smooth configuration, which is a, a kind of like form of a healing of, of sorts. So to, to circle, you know, circle back to all of these, I think, uh, you know, psychedelics and dissociatives give you glimpses of kind of these like highly ordered states of consciousness, very mystical seeming, because they give rise to like new self-organizing principles that in a sense can like do a lot of things like, yeah, essentially like um, reduce the stress stored in your internal representations um, with like psychedelics to a first approximation, like essentially driving the energy upwards. And there's like a whole bunch of like self-organizing principles that are kind of like only exist within certain energy ranges. So like, you know, the, the fire one I was talking about, that would be like a kind of like an energized relative to our baseline uh, self-organizing principle. Um, Whereas like uh, things like ketamine and uh, dissociatives more broadly, I think what they're doing is like they're to a first approxim approximation, like slowing down the speed of wave propagation in your nervous system. And that has like a, a whole set of downstream effects, such as like dissociating from the sense from the um, from the immediate sensory environment. And as a consequence, the thing that it gets optimized for is minimizing the model complexity. So it's kind of like you take a a tiny break from like trying to model the, the immediate environment that those prediction errors don't propagate. So briefly, all you have to, in a sense, um, available for minimizing your dissonance would be the complexity of your inner model, which is kind of, yeah, like if you take ketamine, you will simplify your inner model. Um, and uh, a lot of those like highly simplified states of consciousness may look like, you know, all of the awareness and attention are focused in one point, kind of in a K-hole or like awareness is homogeneously distributed in space or you know everything is kind of like a, becomes a one line so essentially all of these like yeah low information configuration become become accessible so mm. i'm just allowing my my brain to process things um, yeah <laughs> i might add a few things to that Yes, I actually think that there is something sort of sort of structural or semi-essentialist about the way we are wired that does take the universe by elements, that does conceive of the universe in sort of elemental terms. And I, I didn't used to think this until I started doing a ton of fire casino, and I kept seeing that things that clearly have an elemental quality just kept showing up again and again. And I don't think it was just because I was doing an elemental practice or thinking about things elementally. They started doing that before I really gave much credence to any of this elemental stuff. I was kind of a non-elementalist, like based on my physics training and my sort of, oh, alchemy, you know, those crazy kids, whatever. And oh, all these primitive assumptions about the universe. Now we know so much better. And then I just kept seeing experiences showing up again and again in deep states that really did seem like sort of mist or fog or air, really did seem like water and was flowing in a material way like water, really did seem like, you know, earth element and had structure to it, really did seem like space as space, as a thing that the brain operates on sort of very fundamentally as space. 
fire as fire, doing what fire does, moving in a fire-like way, you know, having that sort of brilliance and spreading and flow, you know, just very different, different from water. And then watching these things interact in a way, in a way the mind was generating this content when deprived of other structures, it starts reimposing these kinds of things on experience. And so I actually, I'm going to push back a little bit and say, I have this odd notion that something kind of biologically, these themes of elements just keep showing up again and again. And that's not surprising when we grew up in a universe that has four states, basic states to it in space. I think our, there is something kind of structural, biological is my impression. It seems very hardwired in the same way that red or cold or you know warmth or pleasure or pain seem kind of hardwired into the system. So I'm going to just push back a little bit at that level and see what you think of that. I'll, I'll no, for sure, for sure. So what I'll mention is that like those basic elements are some of the most stable self-organizing principles. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, like they tend to recur a lot and they're like very, they're like a good way of factorizing your experience into kind of discrete self-organizing principles that can simulate it. Yeah. Um, but but what I would say though is that there is a an expanded table, <laughs> and it doesn't look like you know it, it, it just as an alchemist would not have ex expected like oh yeah the table of elements has like you know osmium and platinum and all these weird things. I think like the same like an 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 expanded table of self organizing principles, where some of them will turn out like yeah this is the classic meditation water or the classic meditation you know fire. Like there's other ones, and like just as an example of another one, um, I would say like um, uh, there's a whole set of like non-Newtonian fluid ones. So, um, and for for me, like the most obvious one is like on ketamine. As you're coming down from ketamine, you instantiate this exotic state of what feels a state of matter. It's a state of consciousness, really, which is essentially uh, kind of like. Uh, corn, you, you know, like when you mix like cornstarch and water, mm -hmm. and essentially you, you yeah. push it and it gets it's solid. fun. Yep. Yeah. So like on, on ketamine, there's a whole you know stage of the trip that like your world simulation is made of a substance that behaves that way. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I would say yeah, that's okay. Like it's a it's a weird one, but like it's definitely a possible state of consciousness. It's kind of like this gelatin mixture of gelatin plasma and like non-Newtonian uh, fluid. Um, and like like that, I would expect there's like a ton more. There's kind of like neon glowy plasmatis, gym jam, uh, you know, how like there's a bunch of exotic things or like, like that. Crystalline yeah. fractals or repeating patterns that seem to be a metastructure that is routinely imposed on other structures. Right. Yep. So so there are these other structural elements that recur again and again. I agree. And yep. even within these sort of elemental categories, like if you look at the Fire Casino website, you'll find we break it down into all these sort of subcategories, even within the elements, because mm -hmm. there, there are these things. And then there are these things that sort of seem to combine elements, like fogs, which are sort of this weird thing between water and air. And like you start to find these fusion elements. And so, so I agree, there are four is not enough to define all these sort of seemingly recurring, very, um, uh, yeah, uh, habitually recurring structural patterns that seem to have a deep resonance with how we impose a sense of order on life yeah. from a constructionist point of view, or is that an essentialist point of view? I think it's kind of both. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or impose it, on our nervous system. Say that right? there are recurring essential patterns to the way we construct reality 
is bridging that gap in a functional way. Back to that topic. Mm -hmm. I, th I think a lot of a, a lot about it as um, I mean, one way of approximating like the nonlinear wave paradigm is essentially different roles of a cellular automata. And like if you set up a cellular automata in just the right way, you're going to get like these propagating waves of activation that just go through each other. But if you tweak the parameters, all of a sudden the waves can like collide off of each other or they, you know, they can collide and fragment or like fractalize and do different things like that. So I think like, yeah, when you're experiencing like one of these four elements or, or the hybrid ones or the fusion ones, it's kind of, yeah, you're like hooking up to like that particular kind of cellular automata in your nervous system. Or it's not that you're hooking up to that, rather you're tuning the nonlinear wave computing <laughs> so that it simulates or emulates something that behaves that way. But um, yeah, I mean, essentially, yes, I, I'm, I'm not pushing back. All, all I'm saying is that um, the four elements are probably like very stable and like very evolutionarily adaptive. But when it comes to like consciousness at large, they're like a special case of like, yeah, these weird things that are like non-Newtonian, non-Euclidean. And there's just so many, so many of them as well. I love this Te techno Buddhist alchemy. I'm such a fan. <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is exactly what I thought might come out of this conversation. So. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Frank. That was that was from your um, smoke and air and and water. Yeah, it's like a, like <laughs> there we go. No man, thinking about it at the end. This is like a, a an ice cube, right? At first you're an ice cube, but then you dissolve in the water, and then the mist, and then air. Ultimately, there's there's one thing, but it's just uh, there's a different solidification of it that sort of manifests itself in different different elements. Yeah. yeah. Alchemy, yeah. Well, <laughs> in uh, a way, like and then an insights practice and uh you know fire casino, it's like alchemy. It's like doing alchemy with the mind. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like do alchemy with your direct experience. Not just with mind, like your your entire world becomes just, you know, less solidified and you're, you're doing alchemy to your to the whole universe pretty much. Your your universe at least. Yeah. That's what meditation is. Hmm. Alchemy. I've um I've got a few more prompts, and I'm just gonna pick one. Uh, this is something I've been playing with. Um, there's a statement: there are only two states of being, love and emptiness, and all emotions are just modulations or pointers to these two states of being. Do you agree with the statement? Or not, and why? Anyone can go. Starting off from sort of a Tibetan Buddhist point of view, the sort of balance of emptiness and compassion is mentioned again and again and again, right? So that that that, and this sort of frames also as kind of a, a reworking of the the three trainings, where the first two, morality and shamatha, you know, sort of um, are compassionate. Right? They're assuming beings, they're assuming beings you could be compassionate for, they're assuming causality, they're assuming this sort of every, you know, everything is a thing that is trying to find the end of suffering, and so that is love for itself and trying to help others as best it can, hopefully. And so there's this sense of the compassionate nature being some kind of intrinsic part of the causality, right? So the sense of love or compassion or whatever you want to call it. And then the Vipassana side, everything is just immediate, transient, unfolding you know, 
em emptying whatever. So it's the emptiness side, right? And so from a certain point of view, throughout our conversation, we have naturally been traversing these two and comparing and contrasting and trying to build in our own balancing. Even as we've had this dialogue, we've been sort of working through a frame um, that's a lot like that. And so I'll just stop with that. Um, And then if nothing else arises in that, that empty space, I will fill in with just a little bit more, is I have definitely enjoyed practicing in a way that looked at the emotions through the lens that they were all sort of compassion or love or something. That if I was angry, it's because I, you know, there was this sense of justice and how things could have been better or how things were wrong. If I was afraid, it's because of a natural sense of wanting to protect myself or others. If, you know, if I was um, loving, obviously, well, that's loving and that's straightforward. You don't have to interpolate. But even all of the rest of them and the ones we don't generally think of as loving, if you sort of look at what the essence of what they are and what they're trying to do, there is, even as confused as it might be or unskillful, somewhere under it, the sense of trying to have things be better, right? So the emotions, frustration, you know, rage, jealousy, they're all in some way rooted in the sense of how things could be better. And that in, in some ways is love or compassion, right? Or the sense of wanting to take care of ourselves or others in some kind of way, even if filtered through a lot of confusion and, and there's a lot of, you know, dirt in the mix, if you want to call it that, right? So obviously you've got to be careful with this and saying, oh, all my emotions are perfectly loving. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, and then, then the sort of emptiness is that all of that arises naturally, all of that arises causally, all of that is just transient. There is not actually a separate thing standing outside that is making these choices or observing all of this, right? So this emptiness component to it, and that everything points to these two things. In fact, Actually, right after um, stream entry, I was like, this was all I was talking about. Like those few days, I was just like, oh my golly, it's all like compassion and emptiness and this balance and this flow and this natural thing. And they're the same, but they're, and, you know, it's, anyway, it's going on and on. But it, I think it's a pretty <laughs> useful frame, right? I think it's a pretty neat frame and it's an interesting one. Do I think it's the only frame that's useful or the entire story? Well, clearly our emotional ranges like say there's other you know you want to talk about the other stuff in the mix obviously there's something else in the mix so is it a complete theory i don't know like i think it's got pro it's problematic as a complete theory but have i compellingly felt for periods of time that it was a complete theory yes anyway so i get why people might go oh yeah this is this is yeah, all you yeah. need or yeah, it's like, oh my God, emptiness and love, they're identical, you know, right. oh, I want to empty out the self and it's just love and yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I think about that anymore, but what do you think, Danny, what do you think of the idea of some like some Buddhists or uh, I don't know, um, some of the traditions tend to think that awareness or itself, it's, it's, it's not just like emptiness, it's not just empty, it's, it's not just emptiness, there is like a intrinsic component of like love and compassion, like within awareness itself. I think the bridge, uh, yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, so, pragmatically, I think there's a lot of mileage, and Michael Taft actually and I like to have this debate. So to yeah, to give he, Michael he, Taft he, shout out to Michael Taft if he listens he to this. Or, anyway, has an interesting nature of love. Yeah. Yeah, and and I get the utility of points of view that reify a sense of a stable 
aware consciousness that is transcendent and not all of this, but you know, observing all of this, but not any of this, that has this sort of transcendent yet ever-present quality that is itself somehow compassionate and benevolent or or something, right? So I get that, and I get why that is useful, and I have spent periods of time practicing in that paradigm and found great utility in it. Do I ultimately feel that I could hang my hat on that in a way that I wouldn't hang my hat on other ontologies? No. Does Do I think that the experience of cessation sort of break something in how sticky the paradigm of that as a true permanent thing is? Hopefully. Although I know people who, even myself at points, had had cessations and yet found something about their wanting to be a transcendent, luminous, divine, loving, super space, very compelling. Yes, that can still be very compelling. Do I now find any way that it could compel me or convince me that it was is truly true in that kind of way? No. But I know a lot of people who have gone through that stage. And, you know, in my cynical moments, I'll say like half of the Tibetan or Mahayana Suttists got stuck there. Ooh. Right. That's a pretty kind of like that's kind of and I've said things like this and, and I see the point and why I sometimes say them. I think it's making an important point. Um, that said, as a skillful frame that can really help some people in their practice, particularly with dark nighted stuff or existential crisis or things or counterbalance like the, oh, you know, radical illusionism or whatever, like I think it could be pretty skillfully used. So is there a lot of potential utility in this? Yes. Um, Fun. Do I also think it's a very high stage? And if people get stuck there, is that a pretty darn good place to get stuck? Absolutely. Like this is this is seriously first world problems at this point, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like this is this is the pretty high end of problems to have is being stuck in a phase where you are totally buying into that and think it's absolutely true. But it's a pretty awesome place to be. And if I could, again, as I've said before, if I could snap my fingers and take everyone who is below that stage and have them be stuck there for some significant period of time, of course I would, because it's pretty awesome, right? But then obviously some people are going to think I'm being kind of snottily hierarchical and saying, yes, but there's this other thing. And I am, except that I think there's <laughs> pragmatic utility for also adapting that, as plenty of us have noticed. It being, you know, tons of my friends who have, you know, gone through this have noticed it's a great stage, but this sense of even something that doesn't hold that sense of fixity is better, that doesn't somehow freeze this very amazing sense of reified yeah, I, space, compassion, yeah. something is better, just experientially, regardless of its ontological superiority, experientially, it's just, it's, yes. So that's what I would say to that. Sorry, it was a long answer, but you get you get what yeah. I'm saying. Hopefully, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, think I, I, I was sort of in that stage for a while too, just like, but then I think at that stage there is still a sense of a perceiver somewhere in there that's perceiving this awareness as being loving and compassionate. Yeah. Reputation, where that this the intrinsic like fabric of awareness that everything's rising out of it, versus not having that fabric where the objects and the, the people and the phenomenons and whatever and sensations are just aware of themselves and awareness is not something apart from it. It just it's not it's it's just an elimination of this this underlying fabric that frees up a lot of things too because yeah because the two <laughs> thumbs up. Yeah, because like I think I was suffering a little bit more at that, that stage. Even though that stage is nice, there's still a, a sense of uh, a, a very subtle sense of center here. There's yeah. a difference between quote unquote you perceiving God or whatever versus God perceiving itself as itself in in a sense. I don't know if that that's the right way to put it, but um, 
when I was verifying awareness, in a sense, there's still uh, the, the the self, the sense of self, is still being verified a little bit. That's why there's a verified uh, this object awareness being verified by the subject. Once the subject and the object totally collapse, there's no need for this the self to verify the you know reality experience or whatever you want to call it as the type of this permanent fabric of awareness and everything is just like popping in and out of it. Yeah, so that gets eliminated. And you're right, it does freeze up a lot of more things. Yeah, I get why this is so popular. And like in the suttas, I can't remember if it's Diganikaya or Majiminikaya one. It's the first sutta in one of those two books. And I, I mix them up. One's like the supreme net of views and one is the root of all things. And, and for whatever reason, my brain flips them around sometimes because they're kind of similar in some ways. Um, but this is the this is a, a sutta where the Buddha goes through and categorically says, you know, a, an untrained, unwise person takes these to be self, the property of self, whatever, and goes through the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, right? This expansive equanimity thing, boundless space, boundless consciousness, nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception, or even cessation. And you know, would we'll say like they take these things to be self or the property of self, you know, and they as a refuge, as a something, you know, and and he said, no, 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 no. None of those, none of those are truly that. And finally, at the end, the one who has seen through all of those and takes nothing to be self or the property or self or stable or anything goes through that. You know, that is is what I'm pointing to. And it's the only sutta in the entire cana, canon where at sorry, at the end, the, you know, it says, you know, and the the Sangha, you know, the were not pleased with the blessed one's words. You know, it's the only one. And it, <laughs> but he's going for this radical next step of, yeah, no, no, don't get stuck. Don't don't stop. Keep going. Don't don't reify or solidify any of these things. And obviously there's a whole lot of people who really want to have luminous, stable, stable super space awareness, whatever be the thing. I get it. It's I understand, but Anyway, so that. I mean, that, that that's not a state that a stage that I mean, you can still verify that state if you want to. Like, it's you like you say, it's a useful lens. You now, sometimes mm -hmm. you want that sort of this, you know, prevailing like goodness <laughs> uh, to be like the uh, to be the ground you stand on, which is totally fine. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, I think once you sort of dissolve even that, it's easier to just re verify it as, as as sort of like a useful lens in certain situations. Uh, versus yeah. where you got to be the reality, where you sort of still attaching your sense of identity to that, where it just, you know, it's, yeah. When, when like you verify right? <laughs> one thing I'll mention here is, uh, I mean, with, within some, some paradigms of uh, what attention is and what, what awareness is, and like also the, the non-linearities, I mean, like this, like, highly i guess like highly attained like reifications of reality yeah the the luminous like super space and things like that um it sounds like to i mean to, to some extent this is sort of like um very low entropy configurations of your nervous system like very very you know very very highly ordered um but it sounds like i mean to connect it to something earlier that uh you guys talked about like if you are reifying kind of these like beautiful luminous super consciousness state still the best that you can aim for would be yeah. syn synchrony because what you're aiming you you can do there is like it's essentially like synchronize with that model which will have like its own vibes and it could be like really pleasant you know high valence vibes 
but it's, it's still the best that you can do is synchronize with it. But you guys are beyond synchrony, right? Like you said, like <laughs> you have something better than synchrony, which is maybe the generalization of it. And like that probably only happens when you have like fully snapped out of even kind of these like subtle, subtle existential reifications. And yeah, I wonder if you can tell me more about that. <laughs> but it's like there when you reify awareness or like, you know, you know, the Godhead or whatever, God consciousness, it's it's like you're synced up to it, right? Like there's still a very subtle sense of duality where you are the, as a subject sinking up to the object, even though it feels like you know one. But at that stage, so like you're you're seeing the I, you're seeing the sense of self and everything. If they, oh, everything's me, you know, and I have awareness, whatever you want to call it. But then once you decouple even that, it's just like Daniel said, it's not even synchronization anymore. It's it's not, it's not like this sinks up to that. It's just everything sinks up to itself, and yeah. It's just uh, subjectively, uh, uh, it's a, it's a much more freeing state. I feel like it's it's a much more uh, flexible state. Yeah, I would say. Well, it's a funny thing to say. Flexible is weird. Like, it's it's a funny thing because it also has an absolute inevitability to it. It's not like anything can happen other than as it does. Right, so right. it's it's the it's both utterly inevitable and has this sense of flexibility at the same uh, time. Yeah. So this is a paradox. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a paradox. It's like super flexible at the same time. It's super static at the same time. It's like super, in a, in a way, it's super permanent, but the, it's, at the same time, it's it's also super permanent. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny, it's also, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to describe, yeah. yeah. This is the paradoxical uh, yeah, uh, loops get... we got ourselves into in our, our conversation <laughs> quite often, Frank. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, I guess, and makes sense when you're in it <laughs> and then when you're trying to explain it with abstract language doesn't really make sense but that's fine. <laughs> we can imagine it um <laughs> the thing is we imagine there are actually other options other than what happens like this sort of radical empiricism was the thing finally gives up trying to pretend that there's any option other than this <laughs> right like there there's something other than this that there's a way that it could be anything other than what's occurring so yeah i guess to to ground it slightly like uh, you know we we all seem to be fans of pragmatism here so uh, and i learned a lot from our first conversation about pragmatism with you daniel however many years ago three four years ago um to ground it back in that i guess we're all concerned with um with the state of people and how they're feeling and how their nervous systems are reacting to the world model and i guess that's been a kind of recurring theme of this conversation and so I guess this this love emptiness uh, statement is, you know, maybe maybe not uh, so much on the ontology of of uh, you know awaken the awakened state and this um, non dual awakened state, but more on on regular folks as as a frame to to, to view what emotions are and where they're pointing to. Um, the other little thing that's a fun thing that I've been playing with along this idealism uh, ontology is a telos or a purpose of this thing, right? Like, like, which may be complete nonsense and, and the, and the agnostics here might just, might just, uh, throw the agnosticism as it, and that's totally fine. But if you imagine, uh, you've got this, uh, universal mind or this, or this, uh, this, uh, unified wave that has these topological disassociated beings in it that are rocking around and, and interacting and, and, uh, there's, it's like, uh, Castrop compares it to, uh, human character that has disassociative identity disorder and there's all these different characters and one of the insights that he talks about in one of his podcasts is that 
uh, one patient of DID, a verified patient, um, claimed that they had a, a dream. And when they were interviewed after the dream, the different alters had different perceptions of the dream. They could see the other characters from different parts of the dream. Uh, and he he claims that that's basically what reality is. All of these humans and conscious entities are dissociated uh, identities from the same uh, top, topological like field. Um, and so uh, where I go with that is like a, a potential talos of, of this whole thing, which, you know, whether that's useful to talk about or not is, is, is besides the point for now. We can just entertain it for a moment. Um, so it's like it's, illusory solipsism. It's, it's a fusion of solipsism and illusionism, no, uh, like where they have the illusion of being separate things that are creating this or, or limited illusory solipsism sort of. Solipsism says that there's like one uh, conscious entity and, and that everything else is created. This says there's, there's a whole bunch of conscious, conscious entities that are dissociated. Um, okay. And yeah. That, and so, that the ground, no, so no, it's not you're, quite, you're it's better, not you're quite, right. yeah. I agree. And then the, okay. You're right. That's better. And then the, the universal mind itself may not be a singular unit of experience. It probably isn't because it's not dissociated. It's, it's like a weird thing. It's hard to know, but apparently, uh, a lot of what drives us as conscious beings is trying to attempt to emulate that initial state or get back to that. Like sex, for example, the way that I, I like the metaphor I like to use is that when you have an orgasm, it's like high-fiving the universal mind. So you come back down, you enter that just for a moment and you have this burst of, 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 of high valence. And you also have this sensation of uh, less information of non, non separateness of a kind of non-dualness for a moment with an orgasm or for, for a longer moment for, for, the lucky female members of our species that can go a lot longer, whatever <laughs> <laughs> that, that it seems like, uh, that's the attractor to, to tr attract back to this thing. But the, the weird, uh, kind of, uh, ironic, uh, paradox here is that, um, death would get you there pretty quickly, but for whatever reason, there's this dissociation, which is a very strong attractor away from death. And so all of the things that, that, that we're attracted to doing, we're always chasing high valence, basically. That's like the hedonic treadmill, that's samsara. And that high valence is always just glimpses back to that initial state. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the reality that I'm, rally model that I'm working with and have been working on. And then that state of there are only two states of being love and emptiness is also built into that. That's like, you know, if you're feeling, uh, any of the feelings are either pointing you back to, to love and emptiness, which is that state of that thing. It is both of those things all, all at once. And all of the emotions are, um, they're kind of like, a, in the game of life, they're signaling you on how to, how to most embody that initial state and then eventually return to that in a, in a peaceful way. And, and uh, the more that you're like that initial state, the, the higher valence you have and the less suffering that you have. This is kind of the model I'm working with. And yeah, maybe it doesn't quite work in, for awakened folk like yourselves, where there's this um, uh, baked in agnosticism that cannot be ignored. But for folks like maybe Andres and myself, who are living in, in sort of regular uh, conscious space or, or partially awakened or non-awakened states, it could, to me, it's a quite a compelling uh, uh, worldview, and I, I and the fact that that Kastrup uh, and uh, and and Hoffman are, are chasing it, I think there can be incredible art and story and mythology built on this, and I think it could be a very very positive thing for the world. Well, just just to, to break some of that sense of oh you two and us two or whatever, like <laughs> you know something like that, just to, for a second. So. <clears throat> Sometimes that sense of things arises in me, the sense of the universe talking to itself, right? The sense of, you know, beings who have forgotten their sort of 
cosmic connection or something. It's not like that's, that frame doesn't arise. Sometimes it does. And I think it's a very useful frame. Um, it, so there's definitely times when that sort of mythical overlay or lens has its utility and its value. And so I think it's pretty cool. And so to, to say that it's, so it doesn't, so I have all kinds of ontological frames sort of roll through as part of the nature of how the experience unfolds and attempts to explain itself, right? That's normal. And this is one of them. And it's a pretty cool one, right? And I, I think from a practice point of view, from a morality and ethics point of view, I think it is stellar. This is really good stuff right, from a morality and ethics point of view, in the same way that I think karma and rebirth are actually really good from a morality and ethics point of view, right? And so, and even from a starting to break down the sense of barriers, like from a kind of a fourth jhana or zogcheni sort of a point of view of just looking at the whole thing sort of being the conscious immediate experience of itself, it's because it is pointing to something. It's hitting on a bunch of different levels, right? So it's hitting on a moral, ethical, you know, sila sort of a level. It's hitting on a interdependence kind of a level, which I think is really good. It's, it's hitting on a um, remembering point of view, because it's kind of this, this sort of remembering this collective space that seems to be aware of itself point of view. So that's mindfulness, basically, right? It's mindfulness of the sense of this shared conscious experience, which is kind of a very fourth genre-y sort of way to look at things from kind of a fourth genre-y sort of frame. So I think this is doing a lot of cool stuff, right? And it's doing other stuff. It's mythic resonance is excellent, like that from that sort of um, like namaste, the divine and me bows to the divine in you. You know, this is the universe talking to itself. We're all the sparks of the divine trying to figure out how to make this better. Any teacher of ours is our own consciousness somehow teaching us. I mean, it hits at all these cool levels. So I think it's neat. I think it's great. I think it's useful. Does that mean I think it's absolutely true? No, definitely not. But is it is it really cool? Yeah. Was that helpful? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, the, the orgasm is so it's called mini death in French. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So exactly. death, not death is love is emptiness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, just, a, it's just a more balanced state. Right? Going back to it. And here's this sort of conundrum for a dissociated being, you know, uh, death is the I, way back to that, but we're here, we're here. So, and it's, it's strong attractors to not head back to there prematurely. So whatever that is, that's interesting. I guess the state is almost like it's, it's a little bit like maybe if you if you like dissipate and spread out your five mao experience or orgasmic experience like in a more uh, sort of balanced way into like the field. Yeah, you like you're, you're swimming in it, kind of. Yeah, kind of like you know, <laughs> you condense all of this to just like ten, five minutes would be like a five minute trip. But if you take the five minute trip and just sort of like dissolve it into like your moment to moment experience and throughout this whole field, I guess. It's, le it's a less intense version of it. That's why I almost like I always make analogy of, you know, it, it is kind of like my five minute experience, but a, a, a more, you know, a, a more spread out subtle version where you can sort of have, have a taste of it every moment instead of, you know, just having a glimpse of it for like 10, 10 minutes. So under that mythos, it's like you're floating in the, in the, on the universal mind surface or something, because you've still got the big body and you've still got a character. If you were in the universal mind, you'd just have nothing. You'd be totally disassociated and no separateness and no character and anything. So maybe you guys are like floating on the surface of the pool of the universal mind. And 
others are jumping out and sometimes diving down and touching it and high-fiving it and coming back up. And some the ones that are suffering the most are really fucking far away and they're super, super high up. That's just the way I visualize it. And it's, it's, I find it um, fun and useful. Um, and yeah, can, can re could create some very powerful mythology, powerful art, some really cool stories. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Andres? I mean, oh, yeah, no, for sure. This, <clears throat> this is all great. I mean, the, uh, the quick wrinkle I, I might bring up is uh, that a negative valence uh, in its extreme form is also pretty similar to like highly ordered states of consciousness. So like it's not, it's not like you can easily put it on an axis of like okay, from most suffering to least suffering, like how close you would be to kind of the zero, on, zero ontology state or zero information state because some of the most horrible states of suffering are actually fairly low information as well, just like mm -hmm. maximally dissonant. So. It's kind right, of like it's... the pol political right and the political left end up looking like each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. if you take them far enough. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's there's like an important wrinkle that like, in some sense, like um, yeah, like suffering and and uh, and well-being like are like more similar to each other than like we might expect. And like so, there's always a possibility of kind of like a bad trip <laughs> in a way, or a bad you know the dark night is pretty close by as well. So. Yeah, she, she, yeah, I heard one of his podcasts. He said that people who are like bitten by sharks or like people who are in extreme pain, they actually experience, have, have like glimpses of like Nirvana or whatever. They, they actually go into like this really blissful state where you, if you just look at their face of like victims who are just bitten by sharks, they, their faces look like they're like experiencing some kind of like, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, Molly or something. Yeah. Mm. So, like I said, like, you know, the pain when you push it extreme becomes pleasure and they're actually two sides of the same mm. point. So, Maybe extreme, maybe extreme pushing the pleasure, you know, look back on the other side. Then I don't, that, that would be a very nice thing if it was true. But uh, I think there's quite a few, well, may, maybe with some kinds of pain. I, I do know that like things like uh, cluster headaches or like certain kinds of pain, they, they never get good. And like, it doesn't matter how. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody's got a cluster migraine or cluster headache fetish. Like this no. never, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's more of it. <laughs> no, but. Uh, well, one thing I, I I'd love to circle back on, like for, for both of you, is um, um, one of the most amazing, like amazing, crazy, I would say, like psychonautic uh, chapters of any book that I've read is uh, the Three Doors chapter on the <laughs> mastering the core teachings of the Buddha. Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 really like ultra like ultra trippy, ultra trippy stuff. What you what you wrote in there? I'm I'm curious if. And, and I, I it is it trippy. Is. These experiences are trippy. They're they're a space time existence existentially bending, collapsing, warping. Exactly. Very exactly. Euclidianly bizarre, or sort of non Euclidean stuff. Right. Exactly. Let me connect like three three things why I think this is relevant, and I love mm. like firsthand accounts or something like that because like a absolutely you, you mentioned like you cannot understand the three doors. Um, or the experience of the three doors without like a radical, like non-Euclidean understanding of consciousness. Like there's some kind of radical- Or even space, like what space is, because space can become toroids and spin and, and flip sides and what's like, it can, you know, you know, collapse and do all these bizarre things, right? So space itself gets bent because yeah. it, gets, it gets spun into the insight. Yeah, because- And the sense of subject and object. Sensations, yes. The space and, and time are just, you know, sensations too. So could it be 
like uh, intuitively, and and I know from some like sometimes it can also get like toroidal or like non-orientable lag configuration of, of space on psychedelics like LSD, um, and like there's like various grades of it. Like there's like like fully non-orientable versus like partially non-orientable, and like um, different depths of it. But I, I do get the sense that like. You know, with the okay, like if you take something like electromagnetic theories of consciousness seriously, like it almost feels like it's something like unraveling a magnetic twist that gets rid of like an inherent polarity that like usually we're kind of like polarized states of consciousness. And when you do this weird cessation thing, you're like unraveling so that it doesn't have a pole and like it becomes like without a pole and you lose the yes. duality. Is does that ring a bell? Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, the poles yeah, go I, away I, I, in okay. some very bizarre way. And the fact that I, they can go away in seemingly paradoxically reverse ways, right? So the fact that the poles can go away by collapsing in, like in a no-self door, that they can go away by something being torn away and then disappearing in a suffering door, or that they can go away in something that is both of those, where the whole thing spins and the two sides flip places, whatever that means. Like at that point, the fact that the po the different ways that the uh, polarities can disappear, or even one of my weirder ones, this was like super rare, um, was like the, the whole thing became a toroid, and the inside and the outside of the toroid, like it was like you took a like a, a rubber grommet and you sort of rotated the two things, so the inside and outside spun like but three dimensionally, so it wasn't this side and that side flipping places; it was inside and outside flipping places. The fact that there's all these different ways that the poles can go away is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so I, I absolutely love that. And like, we, the, the thing that I, I think, you know, this might be like a really powerful, like um, where the rubber meets the road would be like cataloging those like exit points and like their, their geometry. Yeah. And I suspect we will probably find like a deep, deep, deep relationship with like the fundamentals of electromagnetism that like it may very well be that like the shape, the thing that you're doing when you're canceling those, those poles, what you're doing is you're undoing a topological pocket that like you, yes. were, you had some topological pocket that within it, it had some polarity because of the nature of electromagnetism. But as you unravel it, that inner polarity goes away and you actually become a perfectly smooth space and like i think yeah and i have this bizarre notion that you'll actually find something in the brain somewhere there's got to be the, the eeg measurable phase change something wave version of that that the part of me that studied differential equations and uh, you know linear systems and Fourier transforms and all that that part of me the electrical engineering -y part of me was like this has got to have a very elegant mathematical structure to it because it's too clean, it's too pure, it's too something. It has that essence of pure math to it. And, and I was th thinking about, and, and then there has to be some kind of electromagnetic pulsy EEG, some correlate of that, that you should be able to find somewhere, which is why I spent you know a car worth on an eeg and you know and spent countless hours putting this thing on my head and recording it doing these various things and and grading them and talking about which door the thing went through and 
and trying to figure out if some if the current technology and mathematics and ways of interpreting this data is sophisticated enough to see that because it is it is incredibly compelling having the mathematical training and the neuroscience training and the meditation training to to not feel that somehow these have got to line up if someone could just do the math right and do the analysis right have you found anything through all this brain scanning yet and just meditating yes some but these these papers are still in publication stage so i shouldn't talk about it too much yet but yes there there's signal there but it, it's not rising yet to the level of what I hope to find in that last quarter second or so because of the motion artifact problem of my eyelids fluttering and doing weird things. But there's still got to be a way that someone could do the, the math to figure that out. And we've got more data with better EEG that we collected at Harvard. It still hasn't been fully analyzed yet. We're working on it. Your, your team's pretty good at math, aren't they, Andre? Yeah, Quentin uh, was working on this, actually. <laughs> um, yeah. But then he, he, he's doing some other stuff now, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, things to be circled back on for sure. Um, yeah. But I mean, I mean, the 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 sort of lens that uh, we were applying is like, okay, like information content and like things such as you know, what is the entropy of the signal and the uh, overall amount of coherence across you know across frequencies and across channels and things like that. Um, the thing that is thing is going to be, I think, like much more radical and like, you know, probably get to the core of the problem is going to be more like. And essentially, like simulations of the topology of the electromagnetic field in the nervous system, and then like how to read them off. I mean, and, and I think like you know, in terms of the neuroimaging, the most promising technique is going to be, I think, like uh, a combination of EEG and MEG, um, simply because like there is the possibility of like reverse engineer what is the topological structure based on that, um, as opposed to yeah, like I think with fMRI, you're like missing out a bunch of information like i don't know if you can actually reconstruct the topology of the em field <laughs> based on fmri alone so um but yeah essentially yeah these like really fast measurements that allows you to essentially detect like those like phase shifts that daniel is uh pointing at i think like a very fine level of temporal resolution is, is going to be needed for that yep. but um but it's, it's more like the, the 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 whole paradigm thinking of it differently rather like um, if you just look at it from like, okay, like classical EEG type of analysis, they look at like, yeah, essentially like functional coherence or things, you know, notions of causality, like, okay, what might be causing what, um, and functional, sorry, fu functional, um, functional localization, like, okay, what part of the brain is responsible for the <laughs> ego dissolution or something like that. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I think like the more radical analysis would be like, okay, what kind of topological unraveling in the fields would be expected to generate this kind of data and like looking looking at it from from that point of view um but uh but yeah i don't know i'm, I'm really excited by it and another quick speculation was um it seems that like i mean from, from reading also the uh, daniel's book um that like uh every cessation itself is kind of like some kind of like training for the nervous system that like allows it to learn something more completely i guess like the three characteristics that's what it, it feels like it, it it's almost sounds like and uh, again like I, I don't i haven't experienced this personally i mean maybe maybe in some indirect ways but you know haven't had like the full experience through meditation but it sounds like you know a lot of the 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 what you're doing with the stages of insight uh you know i talked about like de-energizing the the non-linearities but i think like another thing is like you're getting the the nervous system to be in a hyper coherent state such that 
if you learn something, quote unquote, is not just a sub agent that learns it, but it's kind of like the whole system sees at once. Like the whole is kind of no part of the system can kind of claim ignorance or can there's no plausible deniability in a sense. It's not mm -hmm. like, like, oh, well, I didn't see that. So but it's kind of like, okay, you get the whole system to experience the three characteristics at once. And it sounds like doing that demagnetizes or like decouples something in your experience so that you're not attached to the sensations as much anymore. Some kind of like you're getting all the magnets perfectly aligned so that like the whole system can like this demagnetize at once. Does that <laughs> resonate in any way? It feels like it, you're, you're simultaneously doing that, but also creating the sort of structural reset instability that allows the thing to reconfigure into a different configuration that makes sense, right? So it feels like, imagine if you had a protein that could fold two different ways, right? Maybe it's it could fold one way and it's the pathological prion version and it folds the other way and it's the healthy version or something. It feels like that synchrony throws it into the intermediate state where it could then reconfigure either way like it, it's like it, it it unlocks it and it puts it into a state where like imagine if you had two gravity wells and there was a ball that was like stuck in this gravity well and it was like sort of you know whatever it imagine this like kicks it up to the top like the 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 sort of place where it could then fall into either gravity well each of which has its own existential logic but they're different they take the same data and sort of from an from an interpretive point of view and a, it's you really have to fuse the concepts of interpretation and perception together because they become basically the same at this level right where the interpreto perceptive way it's being handled it's the same data but diametrically opposed logic to it and it puts it up at the top sort of where it could then fall into one or the other or it kicks it up to the top in a way that it can then fall into the other gravity well of a self-reinforcing existential mode that just happens to be totally different from the other one. That's wild. <laughs> That's wow. amazing. Uh, one quick follow-up. Uh, in the same chapter of the Three Doors, uh, you talk about like how like precisely right around like cessations, there's this huge temptation to think of this kind of luminous like superspace. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like why why that becomes more accessible in that state. And also maybe if, if Frank might comment on this, like uh, what is this illusory, like, yeah, luminous, like super state that arises close to the three doors. <laughs> Did that come through? Uh, I, maybe I talk about this just a little bit. Um, so the way the three doors present can can simultaneously hint at two different things, kind of depending on the way you interpret it, right? So there's one way in which you focus on the fact of what you're seeing before the thing collapses, right? So there's this one sense where you get the sense of there is this watcher that is a watcher that can collapse into the that side, right? Yeah. And watcher is a structural, fundamental, really important thing that is falling into that side. Or there is a watcher 
from which the sense of self or suffering or soul or God knows what this some something is torn away from, right? So, or there is a watcher itself, like a stable space that itself can strobe and disappear. So if you have the experience of the three doors and you focus on from a sort of a ontological primacy point of view, the sense of how you could interpret this data in the light of a stable self or a space or whatever that could do these things that could be on one side of it, then that can be compelling. And if you take a more Theravadini point of view and you focus it through the space of the collapse, the disintegration, the strobing, the disappearance of the tearing away from and all of that, then you get a sort of another ontological frame and interpretation. Um, but given the sort of um, highly compelling, seemingly complete, total galvanized attention way that this is perceived, yeah, depending on what your your priors are going in, you could weight one or the other of those as having some more heft to it. Is that helpful? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, sort of like which one do you take as the ontologically, which emphasis has the ontological primacy? Or, right. Or epistemological uh, primacy, maybe, depending on, I don't know. It's getting vague at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, Frank, have you experienced those weird topologies or like yeah, the, the toroidal? It's kind of like what I describe as like the, the screen of you and the screen of like God like collapsing to each other. So they're like one and the same thing, you know, what's looking out through the eyes of God is what's looking out through the eyes of you and they become one and the same. And that, I, I guess in that moment, you kind of, you know, the, 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 the God screen has to be pretty obvious for you to see that. In sense. So maybe that's why before cessation, that be, the superwash becomes obvious. Yeah. And like the other doors too, I think. So, and and the, the the one where you're collapsing, that's the pleasure door, right? Uh, the, the, I think that the, the, is the no self door where the, 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 I call the screen of you here and the screen of like God, whatever, that collapses into itself and then you sort of just blink out. That's the no self door. And it's the nicest of the three. It's definitely the best. Like that's, that's, that's the most like, you know, yeah, top <laughs> shelf. The suffering door, it's just like everything just gets out of you. It's like, you know. Your whole life, or whatever, everything you believe in, you know, even the even the God consciousness gets ripped out of you, and then that that that's very painful. I I haven't been through that door that many times, but um, the, the suffering door. Yeah, that's the, the creepiest one. Yeah, that's the one where it's not it's not really up to you. It's like when you go through a dark night, it just sort of happens to you. And then the the no self door, you can kind of do it, right? Yeah, you can kind of like meditate yourself into it, and then um. The other one, the impermanence door is kind of like, yeah, I'm not too familiar with that door. It's just, you know, it's just like there's, there's a point where everything just kind of freezes up, where it's like every when impermanence observed to the deepest level, everything just sort of like freezes and then things out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, like, like it's that. so fast. The thing is, this one is the fastest of the three doors by far, like by, I don't know, not quite an order of magnitude, but it's really quick, right? And yeah. so you've got to have a pretty high degree of comfort with the phenomenology of extremely fast pulses to kind of get what's happening with that one that one's more like, i think it's more like you know the the, the movie frames so you go sort of like go into the what's between two movie frames so you sort of have to like do really fast to like perceive what's in between the two frames of the movie <laughs> yeah so in a sense like impermanence when taken to extreme it's like you know everything freezes and then really fast it's like kind of next after frozen it's like we just blink out and then it comes back
queer. Yeah, those things are weird. <laughs> and and how about um like a topological reorganization like um like this tor toroidal state of consciousness? Uh is that is that something you've also experienced, Frank, in the process of getting uh, to a cessation? I, I, I can relate to some of it. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, you know, what you think is the, uh, that size is actually this size. So, you know, just like things flipping in, like from this side to that side. Yeah, I've experienced some of it. Yeah, but probably not as uh, as familiar with it as Daniel is. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can relate. Some of my experiences can, I can, I can relate to it. But uh, yeah, I, I don't have the phenological description like so clear as Daniel. <clears throat> yeah. mm -hmm. Because like, I guess in a way, like the process of it, it's like, you know, before before awakening, you're you're on this side. We're looking at that side. So of course, when you go into the process of the solution, there's going to be um, certain visions or certain like you know um, during the unfoldment of like you know the the, the mind, whatever. There, there are going to be like experiences where you feel like this side is over here, that side is over there. Because the the fact that there's this side over here and that that that's over there, that that duality is an illusion. So when you sort of see through that delusion, I guess maybe some of those visions are the maybe the byproduct of that. You know, seeing through that illusion, or I don't, know, I don't really know what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> some of those things are just like I don't know what the fuck is going on. It's just really weird. <laughs> when you try to rationalize it, I don't know if it makes sense, but you know. <laughs> so I mean, the first approximation there is this. Uh, I mean, the the thing I call the enhanced symmetry. Sorry, lowering the symmetry detection threshold on psychedelics, the things like are kind of symmetrical, they snap into symmetry. So to, to say something about that, like, I mean, essentially, it seems that like, um, whenever you cannot find a difference between two elements of your experience, yeah. uh, essentially, the there's a symmetry breaking operation that falls away, and essentially, they kind of like blend and become one. Um, and uh, I mean, this happens, I think, like in highly concentrated states of consciousness or psychedelics as well, that like uh, this phenomenon happens all over the place where like, okay, like if you become fully deeply in love with somebody, you know, the boundaries between you and the other person internally, if they feel, feel like they fall away and you kind of like perfectly synchronize with it. Um, all high valence states of consciousness kind of like have an element of these. And yes, I mean, like the upper levels of psychedelia is like, okay, left and right lose meaning. And all of a sudden there's actually, you know, no left and right, there's no up and down. It sounds like the kind of symmetry breaking operation that you guys are getting rid of is something so fundamental about, yeah, this basically this kind of orientation of consciousness of like, there's a, a here and there's a there. And like, it sounds like, yeah, this operation that you guys are doing on cessation is undoing that like really, really, really core kind of a symmetry breaking. That, that that took place maybe when we were born or, or when the field got pinched somehow um, it is hard not to imagine that it's the original sin that is then being something i mean like to to have to give it that sort of like you kind of just did when we were born or something right it's, i don't mean to you know annoy the christian <laughs> mystics here or whatever but it, it's hard it, it interpretively it is hard not to give it that level of fundamental import or weight that it it is that it is the fundamental structure of attention or consciousness or whatever that is being looked at at that deepest level yeah so experientially it is compelling to give it that level of interpretation yeah 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 I like the analogy of like, you know, two people in love and they just kind of collapse into each other and then you say flip, 
you, you sort of flip to the other person, the other person flips into you, kind of stuff like that, I guess is good metaphor what's going on yeah it's like you you in reality you become like marry and fuck each other so much that it's just <laughs> yeah, you flip you flip the reality reality flips into you and it just become at the end it's just reality fucking itself mm-hmm. amazing <laughs> <laughs> and that gets you back all the way ryan back to your sense of these beings that are part of the thing but have somehow forgotten or gotten lost in their role or whatever so we're suddenly back to your original premise that you started all this off with. Yeah, we're, we've we've explored ontology uh, deeply in this, and this is this has been amazing. Um, we're coming up to the edge of our time here. We've got about ten more minutes. Um, does anyone need to leave on the hour, or could we go five or ten minutes over? We could go a few over. I don't have a hard stop. Okay, okay. I, I do have a meeting at, at ten. So yeah. okay, okay. So there is a hard stop then. No problem. Um, then. I will leave one of those questions for a future chat. Um, it'd be nice to finish this off like I usually do with these podcasts, just with some lighter kind of fun questions um, just to get us out of the intensity and just, just to finish it off. So um, I'll leave, I'll leave the question about uh, how enlightened child, like very, very young children are. And I'll leave the question about um, surprise uh, and how that increases valence, which is uh, one I've got from Andreas. So we'll leave those ones for another future chat, but uh, these are just some quick ones. Um, we can just go in a circle. Maybe we just go Frank, Daniel, uh, Andres. Um, favorite scent. And Andres, I like this one. <laughs> What's your favorite scent? My favorite scent? Uh, like, like smell, like a scent, scent, not scent, mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> scent. I'm not sure if I have one. No, no problem. <laughs> Maybe like books, books are like new, like scent of a, inside of a new car or like shoes. Yeah, I like smelling shoes a lot, shoes and books. Oh, like new, new shoes, I guess. New shoes and new books are nice, yeah. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Daniel? <laughs> um, I'm really prone to floral scents, so it's it's like we have some um, a number of flowers that are blooming right now, and that f- fresh floral scent of newly blooming flowers in spring in general mm. is a sort of a category of scents that I very much like. But of them, I'm equally torn between rose and jasmine. So mm. which of those I would give the top place to somewhere in that spectrum is what I prefer. Is is there is there an association with those that increases valence? And I'll ask that back on you with the shoes, Frank, as well. No. Um, also, the the smell of estrogen mixing with perfume is pretty nice. Of what? Sorry. The mixture of like estrogen and the perfume, like like a like a girl smell. Ah, uh, yeah, like, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a, like a woman walk past you and you can kind of. There's a, there's a mixture of both like you know her um, the chemicals like produced by her body and versus the the natural side of it and the artificial the, the perfume that's mixing together that's kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's balance or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Balance the of the artificial nature. The character likes it. The character Frank Yang likes yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> um, Andres. I'll say a. Uh... I mean, there's like a several scents that I consider like very, very functionally relevant. So like uh, things that I just hold like right next to my computer is uh, <laughs> Neroli. I think like no, Neroli is a great one. Yeah, Neroli is great. How do you recommend Neroli? There's a lot of, they smell very different from one to another, but like 
the essence of Neroli is, is amazing. Uh, Ber Bergamot is another super functional one. And uh, Lime? Like, these three, mm. they're all kind of, like, citrusy, but they're, just, like, functionally are really effective at, like, waking you up and energizing. But then you probably so you suck. Just Go ahead. It? Just, like, smell yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I just, I just smell it, so... It, yeah. Interesting. It gives Recently, uh, I made a quality computing post, and Daniel actually has a, an early version of these <laughs> that didn't quite work out as I hoped, but it's called uh, Fearless, which is like, yeah, a scent that I made um, to combat fear. But it's, it's the, the whole idea of it is like, it's not about the associations. It's not like, like oh, I, you think of um, you know, vanilla, and it's like, the association is something without fear. It's like, no, structurally, the actual texture of the smell counteracts the kind of like the 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 sharp rigidity quality of fear itself so it's like a what, what i call the qualia core aesthetic is like looking at the actual structure of the qualia and then seeing in what way they may counteract or synergize with other things and uh this one i mean the first approximation is uh the mixture of uh mint vanilla and ylang ylang although yeah the 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 real deal actually has a bunch of other like pure molecules, but that's the rough idea. Actually, the cologne I make for myself uh, uses both vanilla and uh, peppermint. So, it, but then it mixes it with some woody notes, including uh, bergamot and um, and then some of the others, right? So some balsam fir needle and cypress and things. So I actually think there is something great about some of those small combinations as well, yeah. S same kind of neck of the woods family that we both ended up finding ourselves in wanting to yeah, <laughs> be around more. Love it. Um, final one. Uh, this is super quick, but if you could travel to one planet in the solar system in a private spaceship and hoon around and check it out, which planet would you choose, Frank? Um, I don't know. I, I'm good here. <laughs> Earth, great. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, these are just fun ones uh daniel jupiter would be super compelling to me i it looks really really interesting and then uh the moons of jupiter as well would be very very interesting um the whole complex actually would fascinate me yeah nice andres uh i mean probably pluto so like the the reason is uh <laughs> it's just like a fun observation that like um uh i asked this on on twitter recently which was like what what do people believe is the average temperature of matter in the universe and like a lot of people believe that average temperature is going to be really close to zero kelvin but that's actually the average temperature of space like that's actually like yes like because of the cosmic background radiation the average temperature of space is like two degrees kelvin the average temperature of matter though it's about like 10 million degrees celsius like it's <laughs> yeah because <Whoa. laughs> yeah most interstellar like most matter like most regular matter is like an interstellar gas is not even in stars like it's not even in galaxies like that's still like a relatively small percentage of, of matter and like all of these like you know cosmic wind is like through due to gravitational drag it's at like extremely high temperatures <laughs> so then like the the funny thing is like you imagine like oh the emptiness of space is like super cold but actually no like it's super hot um, then the question is, why does Pluto, why is Pluto so cold? And here's, it's just like this very fascinating insight, which is that if you actually want something to be cold, 
you need to first clump together so that it can actually radiate out its energy and average out its its uh, momentum to actually get kind of like something that gets really really cold so is this very funny thing that like if you want something cold you need to first clump it together and like pluto is yeah one of the coldest places you you can get to or definitely the coldest planet in our in our in our <laughs> yeah solar system I like that you're still giving uh, Pluto planetary status. I was oh, yes. pretty disappointed <laughs> when they took its planet hood away. <laughs> Poor so Pluto. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> Poor Pluto. Well, guys, um, that's we've got one more minute before Andres has to go to his meeting. So we'll call it there. Um, perfect timing. Thank you all for your time. Thank you all for a wonderful uh, ontological dinner party. Uh, maybe that's what the podcast will be called. And um, yeah, we'll talk again at some point i imagine somewhere somewhere in the world at some point but love, love fantastic to see you thank you so much everybody <laughs> thank you ryan and daniel bye and uh ryan have a good night you too